So welcome, gentlemen, to the uh, Laughing Monkey Music Show. Um, today we have Venom Inc. on, the, uh, the house band for uh, the devil here. You guys are, it's so funny because you guys are probably like the nicest guys. It's, uh, ah, it's really good you. to have you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, all in the making, I know you make evil look so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's when we're not dressed up or on stage, that's when we're passive. We, is that what it is? I don't know. You guys, are, even even your um, interviews and the bus invaders, you guys are hilarious. Sorry. You guys, it's probably a classic episode out there on YouTube with your comments. You guys are so funny. Yeah, bus invaders is a favorite one. And Chaos TV, when we went yeah. to uh, Memorabilia, so Rockabilia, that was a funny one. But you know, I think the thing is that. Uh, uh, myself and Jeff, we come from the north of England. Yeah. Uh, it's a very industrial uh, city we came from. And uh, coupled the industrial nature of coal mining, shipbuilding, so a very harsh life for our parents and stuff. And then you couple that with, the, with uh, um, you know, the desolation that was the late 70s into the 80s in northern UK towns. And so people didn't have money. They, they, they most died quite young. And so we turn to humor, you know, like every poor people, they're probably the warmest and funniest people because they don't have much. So if somebody's yeah. only got a pack of beans, they'll invite you and your whole family and to share the beans, you know, uh, it's the guys with steaks and wine. They don't want to share their shit. Uh, and I think that Jeremy fits in with us. You know, he's from the North uh, uh, of uh, uh, the USA, even though he lives in Florida. And I think from a kind of industrial area up there and uh, Michigan area and stuff. So that's, oh, yeah, Michigan. Yeah, my uh, yeah, my father was yeah. uh, my father retired from General Motors. My grandfather retired from General Motors. My aunt retired from General Motors. Wow, legacy. Yeah, my mom so worked at the Boeing plant there. Yeah, so I mean, they were all factory workers. Did you see that? Kind of humor, you know, a working class background gives you that kind of resilience and that kind of humor. I can see that you guys. You guys are hilarious. You guys are so funny. Oh, man, I'm a big fan of a uh, Brit humor, so I really have a hard time when these two guys get fucking rolling. I'm like the first one laughing. I'm like having a hard time. Like, and it's funny because it is the American. As Americans, we do love that British humor. You, 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 yeah. you, 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 you first you start off points with with like the weird look, like a smirk, and then yeah. you get the accent, and then it just rolls. You know, yeah. <laughs> it just carries it over so well. Um, Speaking of things, I know, so you guys all have nicknames. We're, 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 yeah. the, the nicknames from, I think, uh, any of you guys can start. Where, where are the nicknames from? Uh, Jeff, uh, man, from? Man, oh, I mean, well, we're, 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 we back in the early days when it, when we sort of whittled the, you know, I mean, if you want, we'll go into the, the form. Oh, yeah, this is, this is, this is, this is your life, man. I want, um, well, basically, um, I met a guy, um, I was, what, I would have been 16 or 17, and I was training in Taekwondo, and it was a brand new club, and this was, um, when I first started, it was 1976, so... I mean, it was a brand new club. Martial arts were huge at that point. You know, Bruce Lee was all over the movies, everything, you know. And I had been training a few years previous to that, just at any club I could find. I always wanted to do a career now. So Taekwondo came into the northeast of England. Um, and funny enough, uh, it was a demonstration by the guy who was to become my instructor 
which was at Newcastle City Hall in 1976. So that was the start of my martial arts career. If you fast forward to 1979, then Judas Priest at Newcastle City Hall, the same venue was the start of the band, you know. But there was this guy at the, um, the Taekwondo club and like I say, it was a big club. It was a new club. Nobody knew each other. So everybody was making new friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I seemed to get on with this guy. He was a couple of years older than me. His name was Dave Rutherford. And we also found out that we had a mutual love of guitar. And I was just sort of messing about at that point with, with a guitar. I had gotten my first sort of little basic thing. And um, he was heavily into Deep Purple. I was discovering Kiss and stuff like that at that point, you know. I'd grown up through the glam era with Slade and T-Rex and The Sweet and, you know, all all of it. It was always guitar-driven stuff. And then first single I ever bought was Seven Seas of Rye, my queen. Um, And actually, just give me two seconds. Absolutely. I can see it right now. This is the first album I ever bought when I was a kid. Still have it? There you go. Nice. T-Rex. And because I'm doing this for something tomorrow, the next album a few years later that had a massive impact was that. Look at the condition it's in. Mm. Nice. um, But anyway, this guy, we just started getting together at each other's houses and jamming and stuff like that. And then... Uh, there was another guy came in. He was playing a bit of bass with us. And then we had a drummer. The, dr- the drummer, actually, we met um, on a, a road called Shields Road in the biker area of Newcastle, which is not the nicest of areas. But um, we went back to his house and his audition for us, bearing in mind we couldn't play for shit at this point, but his audition was to sit down and play along to um, Genesis Seconds Out, the live album. And we, we were sort of sitting in his room going, fucking hell, look at that. Anyway, he came along to the rehearsals. And then we had a another bass player called Dean. Um, we had a singer. So there was a, a five-piece. And then the first sort of piece of the puzzle that came along for Venom really was Tony Gray. He came along for an audition. And I remember... We were rehearsing in a school gymnasium, um, just up, not far from where I was living at the time, actually. It was opposite the hospital called the Freeman Hospital. Um, and he came along for this audition one night because I was, at that point, I was getting into heavier music and I was just a noise merchant. You know, I wasn't interested in improving or anything like that. I just wanted to That's make That's a good title for a song, Noise Merchant. <laughs> <laughs> Write that um, down. So. <clears throat> Abaddon came along, well, he wasn't called Abaddon at that point, but he came along to this rehearsal. I had two drummers to meet in Newcastle at this point. Um, We'd put an advert out, and I met him at a a music store called Rock City, and seemed to get on okay. And then I had another guy to meet, but I didn't even bother meeting him. I thought, well, he'll do. It It was as quick as that. Really? Um, he came, yeah, he came along for the audition, and I remember the bass player at the end of the audition coming up to me and saying, is this guy joining the band? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he was like, oh, fuck this. So he left. He was like, no, I'm not, you know. Um, and then 
I'm sort of skipping loads of stuff here, like, but I was at um, my girlfriend's friend's house in Wall's End, funny enough, which was the home of Neat Records at that point. Now, the friend that I had at that point was playing bass, was called Alan. And he had a lot of friends in Wall's End. He was from Walkerville, which was just down the road. And every Tuesday night, we would go to Anita's best friend's house and just sit, drink beer, order pizza, and, and listen to metal music. You know, her parents, that was her parents' night out. They used to go out for the night out or whatever they did. So all her friends would come round. This particular night, I walked in, and um, Anita's friend was called Michelle. And Michelle came over and went, oh, my new boyfriend's here. So I just walked in, didn't think anything of it. And there was a guy sitting on the couch reading a magazine. And uh, I just walked, walked over and went, oh, I'm Jeff. He went, yeah, I'm Conrad. And uh, we just got talking. And at that point, the guitarist, Dave Rutherford, he was a little bit unsettled in the band. He wasn't, I don't think he was interested anymore. So we needed a new rhythm guitarist. So I invited Conrad to come along because it, we spoke and he says, oh, I play guitar. And I was like, oh, really? Yeah, I've got a band. And um, the thing that got it for me now, though, was he said, I'm working at Impulse Studios, which was Neat Records. I didn't know it was Neat Records at this point. I just knew Impulse Studios. Now, previous to this meeting, I had been to Impulse Studios just to ask about doing demos. And I just walked away with my tail between my legs because we couldn't afford it. It was far too expensive. You know, we just didn't have any money. So I thought, oh, somebody working in it. Now, yeah, and in, exactly. Um, now, little did I know at that point, but I since discovered afterwards, he was on what they call a YOP scheme, which is YOP, Youth Opportunities Programme, whereby the government would pay a business a certain amount of money to take a youngster off unemployment benefit and just give them something to do within the company. Like and a job career thing, right? Yeah, they do it here too, yeah. still. Yeah. Like, an inter- was, like, a paid, like a paid internship. He was basically yeah. he was basically making fucking tea and learning how to splice tape. That's what he was, you know. I mean, it, I've heard so many tales about what he what he did. At that I was like, I don't think so because I was there. And then the, the, there was a big interview came out with one of the engineers, one of the mixing engineers uh, called Steve Thompson, who just defunct everything about it. So yeah. Like, yeah, well done. Um, but anyway, Conrad came along to the rehearsal where we were re- we were rehearsing in a church hall in West Westgate Road, at the top of Westgate Road. Now, Westgate Road is a big, long road that ran up um, sort of on the way out of Newcastle, if you like, yeah. up into the West End. Um, and it was all the motorcycle shops and secondhand shops and stuff up there. You know, there's a couple of cinemas at the bottom. But we were right at the top, and to the left, there was this horrible old church hall, a big church, and we used to rehearse there every Saturday afternoon. And we actually did our second gig there as well. Uh, first first gig we ever did was my girlfriend's birthday party, which went down well with her parents. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Conrad came along to that church hall rehearsal and uh, he walked in. And I remember Abaddon's first words were, oh, fucking hell, who's she? <laughs> <laughs> and that was as he walked into the back of the hall. Anyway, um, he joined. And at that point, we were still a five piece. So he came in as rhythm guitarist. We had a singer called Clive Archer. Um, 
then the bass player left. So Conrad just took over bass by default. It was like we were just too, to be brutally honest, we were just too fucking lazy to advertise for a bass player. So it was like, oh, I'll do bass. It was like, yeah, okay, then you do bass. And um, how long had you been playing guitar before? So you like taking lessons and stuff? Like, no, not at all. No, I remember. You I guys remember all evenly just kind of like learning and being a hot mess. Yeah, you we, guys, we, like, we were learning like more as proficient we went than the other kind of carrying you guys. No, we didn't give a shit. We were learning as we went along. Right? I remember being at school and having a little acoustic guitar and going to guitar lessons. Right, and this is a true story. There was about eight or ten of us sitting in a classroom with acoustic guitars. Right, and a little book in front of us with the chords on, mm-hmm. and you had to strum a chord four times, then go to the next chord four times, then the next chord four times. The only fucking chord I could hold down at that point was a D chord. So I would hold the D chord and then flip the pages, looking for the next fucking D chord, wait for it to come around, <laughs> go one, two, three, four. Right, where's the next fucking D chord? Um, so that was my guitar lessons. I just, I just got bored with it. You know, it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I, I learned from vinyl old vinyl the thing that did it for me um on a learning scale was a book that i bought by this guitarist that i'd never heard of at this point and this must have been late 70s early 80s something like that it was a flexi book it was quite a big book it had a flexi disc inside it and there was two songs homage to hendrix and snaker on one side, it was the full song with the solos. On the other side, it was just the backing tracks. And obviously, you learned the solos, and then you played them over the backing tracks. Um, and from that book, I learned a movable power chord and the first position of the pentatonic scale. As soon as I knew that, I was trying to write my own songs. See? The, the guitarist who wrote that book was Pat Farrell. Remember that guy? No, never. Never heard of Pat Farrell? Check him out. Check out the Hughes and Thrall album from the 80s. Pat Thrall is an amazing guitarist. I can't believe I don't know that. I, see, I know yeah, everything yeah. is obscure. I'm going to look it up. I, I, I'll bet you I'll be after and be like, oh, so no, I do know this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this, he's an incredible guitarist. But at, at that point, he was just a young guy who had wrote a book. I didn't know anything about him. Um, so anyway, we're now down to a four-piece. Conrad on bass, me on guitar, Abaddon on drums, and Clive Archester on vocals. By this time, we all had between us one battered copy of the Satanic Bible. So the front of the Bible, the, the Sergil of Baphomet became the logo. Yeah. And then Abaddon drew this logo, which later came out. It was copied from something fucking else, right? Because Conrad showed me yeah. it one day when we were training together. I was like, holy shit. That's why he, changed all the, he put all the spikes on and stuff. Um, the Sergil of Baphomet has been around for fucking centuries. Okay, so there's nothing designed. It was just copied and stuck together, traced and put together, right? Welcome to Hell or In League With Satan was a standard old English font. Um, we then took names from within the Bible because um, we thought, right, we're going to do all this with the, the image and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, the songs. A lot of the early material was written before Conrad joined the band anyway. Um, the name was already there. The name came around by a guy who used to hang around with the band. Um, we were just sitting around one day thinking, well, hey, you know, we should have a name. And this guy sitting in the background went, what about Venom? We went, that'll do. It was all as quick as that. There was no real thought process put into it at all it's you know, hilarious we, looking we, back at the inc- at the uh, impact of the name and just you know yeah yeah we those beginning no, was, non-decisions no, no there was no master plan there was no blueprint there was no fuck all it was just 
at the end of the day, you know, what became the classic lineup, it was just basically three guys who didn't know what the fuck they were doing, apart from, you know, we can write some songs. And that was it. Conrad took over vocals again by default when Clive left the band. But prior to Clive leaving the band, we were rehearsing in North Shields somewhere. Now, all originals at this point? All, all originals? Are you guys throwing any covers or what? Um, we did. We used to do Green Man Alishi, um, No Class, Motorhead. Yep. And we used to do God of Thunder. God of Thunder. There was three three tracks that we used to do. We did try to play The Ripper because Clive and myself, huge Priest fans, but mm-hmm. we we weren't proficient enough to play that shit. It was like, nah, forget it. Um, so anyway, at this rehearsal, this particular day, uh, I had written the song Live Like an Angel, Die Like a Devil, and I asked Conrad if he would sing it. The idea being that Clive would go off stage and do a costume change and come back on for schizo. Schizo being about the serial killer. Yeah. So he would come on with a bag with all the gruesome implements and all that kind of stuff, right? So it would give Clive a chance for a costume change. Um, if you listen to the early demos, if you listen to the church hall tapes that have just been released, there's not that much difference between the two vocal styles at the end of the day. You know? No. Conrad's probably got a bit of a stronger voice, but and it developed a little bit more, but vocal style-wise, no. And it did make me wonder, when I heard those old demos back again, it made me wonder, I wonder what would have happened if Clive had stayed in the band, you know? Would it have took off as much? I mean, Clive was wearing what is commonly now known as corpse paint as well. But it wasn't It wasn't theatrical makeup. It was actually paint. We used to get this paint. In England, it's called whitewash. Okay, it's a very thin white paint. But we used to slap it all over his fucking face and then dry it with a hairdryer. I'm and safe. Then make him, and then it all used to crack on his face and we would pour blood in all the cracks and all that kind of stuff and black his eyes up and all this kind of thing. And there's some photographs kicking about of him with that stuff on. He did the first couple of shows with all that stuff on. My thinking at the time was... Mm, bit Alice Cooper and Kiss have already done it and well, what are people going to think? Fast forward nearly 40 years and every motherfucker looks like a panda now, you know? It's, like, it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I know. But um, so that was, that's a condensed history of the origin of the band. So, you know, Abaddon came into my band yeah. and then it just morphed and it just, everything happened by default. And like I say, there was no fucking master plan. There was nothing. There was, you know, I'm, I'm fair way through the book that I'm writing about the whole thing now. And I got to this chapter. I wrote this tra- chapter called The Dreaded Second Album. And, you know, it's a thing that Venom Inc. are sort of going through now because we've got, we've got the follow-up to Ave. And any band which has made an impact or had some effect with their first album, you know, Everybody, press and fans, are going to be watching for the second one, you know? And that was the case with Venom, with the original lineup. You know, it was Welcome to Hell had went boom and just fucking exploded. Even the record company didn't know what the fuck was happening, you know? It's a bar too high. Um, And then when when it came to the second one, we were lucky. And why? Because we knew nothing about the industry. We were fucking ignorant and we were so arrogant and fucking up our own asses that we thought, fuck it. And we just continued to do what we did. Hence black metal. And that, that was it. 
there's no a name for the the genre too yeah yeah i want to no i want to interject a, a, a cool thing here. black metal was written on the toilet so check this out i uh my wife uh when she was a teen she had a pretty big record collection and uh she had a uh well a junkie boyfriend right so he ended up he got into a bad wreck and he became a junkie and blah 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 blah. he ended up selling all of her records uh, i hate these stories have... yeah it's pretty bad <laughs> oh, record does... collector, like 300 just kills me sorry yeah it has like a it has a good <laughs> ending though but uh so he sells he's he takes her records and sells them you know sells them for drugs whatever so fast forward to 20 years later or so and we're uh we're sitting here talking. She was talking with a buddy of hers and was like, hey, I see you're collecting vinyl. I'm selling my whole collection. He's like, I'll give you this whole lot for 300 bucks. And we're talking, there's like, I mean, maybe there's a bunch of seven inches. There's probably like 300 vinyls total in this. I mean, it's a big collection. And she goes, he was friends with that guy. And she goes, what are the chances that any of these might be mine? And he was like, Oh, actually from Paul, uh, that was his name. And she's like, he's like pretty, pretty high. It's pretty high chances that you have some stuff in here. So we're flipping through. She's like, Oh, this is mine. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. Oh my God. So she's, she got a a bulk of her collection back. But, uh, but the reason why I'm bringing it up is in there is a, uh, is a black metal, (laughs) <laughs> it's just it's just in a thing there's no it's just in a sleeve there's no anything else with it there's no cover nothing like that and i'm like oh wow i'm like oh this looks pretty old and i'm looking at it i'm like i'm looking on the matrix and i, I you know you can google and look that shit up now and you can see where it came from and it's the one with the insignias all the way around stan so it's a uh, it's a 1005 a and b it's the first uh, pressing from neat uh, wow. first pressing like super limited i'm like no way it just all kind of like was in this package it was like here uh hey i know you know i know you might be interested in some vinyl and it was like wow you know so i'm sitting there holding that's that. awesome of course, I, of course i put it on like a kid you know and i'm like listening to the vinyl and i'm like you know i get like overwhelming like waves that'll hit me and it's like oh yeah uh jeff's my friend uh tony's my friend and we play music together i'm like that usually like you know <laughs> mows me over like a like a truck out of nowhere i'm like you know, you know, know but in those, in, back then when that album was released you know and we're talking black metal now so i mean we're we're, we're hitting the heyday of venom now mm-hmm. you know with black metal it, it, it's it's really exploding now we couldn't go fucking anywhere we had police escorts through countries, we had restaurants closed for us to go and have a meal in in private. We had the whole nine yards, and we didn't fucking realize what was going on. We see any we income from it though, and the shows are you getting any money? Because usually bands don't usually see any of that crap for it in the beginning. We seen fuck all. I all right. have never Thanks. Okay. to this day to this day. All right. I have never so far, seen zero bands that had the same story on that one. <laughs> I have seen no royalty statements from Neat Records. I've seen nothing. I mean, we should have gold discs, maybe even platinum discs. I don't know. So so it's like you're a rock star, but you have nothing. Okay. Fuck all. Absolutely fuck all. And with black metal, I can still remember myself and Conrad going into Newcastle City Centre with a bunch of black metals and putting them into the record stores and making our own displays. (laughs) We we still did that, you know? Um, So it was all... The whole Neat Records thing, and there was never a contract with Neat Records either. The whole thing was DIY, and 
you know, we know where the money went. We we know exactly where the fucking money went. It certainly didn't go to the band. Um, but you know, having said that, you know, the tours that we did, um, you know, having you know, going to America and having Metallica open for you. You know, even even though it was all those years ago, it's still an incredible thing. You know, when when you're speaking to some young guy now, and you know he's into metal or something, I go, oh yeah, you're into metal, blah 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 blah, and uh, somebody will say, oh yeah, Jeff's Jeff's in a band, and they'll go, oh yeah, what? Say, oh yeah, Venom, yeah, yeah, fucking hell, what Venom, the Venom? It's like, yeah, 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 but they still don't know the history, and it's like. Yeah, oh, well, tell them, say, well, you know, when we first started off and Metallica supported us, it's like, fucking what? Uh, yeah, and then the next tour we did Slayer support and then Exodus and fucking, you know. And um, it happened to somebody, I just did this, somebody else, I said, oh, yeah, I'm, it says, I'm talking to you guys. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, see, I'm 50, so I, I know, like, metal all the way through. So you can tell, like, the younger younger metal, you're like, you tell them, like, who? What? Oh, no, you don't understand. This is a mm-hmm. benchmark. And even Black Metal yeah, title yeah. came from this. I mean, there's ground zero for a lot of this mm-hmm. yeah i mean god it's like you know we still get still get cited as the big influence for starting everything and the thing that makes me laugh that really makes me fucking laugh when when you see in the press it's like oh venom you know were venom really black metal it's all fuck off you know venom had an album called black metal venom had a song called black metal where the fuck did the name from the genre come from, right? What mm-hmm. else was it going to be called, you know? that they, they took it from there. It's like Bathory. Where do you get that from? Fucking, you know, all the rest of it. It's oh, like, from it, yeah. Like, for fuck's sake, man, just acknowledge it. I acknowledge my past. You know, my fucking, you know, lay down your souls to the gods, rock and roll. Fall to your knees and repent if you please. It's fucking priest. Right? Yep. The the center the center section of Countess Bathory. The Ripper. That's where that came from. You know? <laughs> I thought about that. my influences. It's it's like, yep, it came from there. I'm not gonna rip anybody off. And acknowledge and then I get asked about the black metal scene. Right? I know fuck all about it. Absolutely nothing. I do not follow it. I'm aware of two bands, Dimo Borgia and Behemoth. And that's it. People go, oh, but you know, Bathory and Cawthorn, never heard a song. I've never heard a song. Not one. Immortal, never heard it. Emperor, never heard it. No. And I deliberately, back then, I did not listen to these people because I didn't want any external influences, new stuff creeping. Mm -hmm. I'm old school, and that's where I'm staying. My stuff came from. You know, again, writing this book, I discovered that the album Overkill had a massive effect on my writing. You know, the motorhead stuff. You know, all that fucking bow, 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 You know, you, you listen to that. And there's a lot of that in Venom. There's a lot of these double stops in Venom. There's, there's a lot of that stuff. And it, if you want to be one of these people who analyze fucking songs, go and listen to Welcome to Hell. Go and listen to Black Metal. There's no fucking flattened fifths there. It's all fucking rock and roll and just power chords and blues progressions and stuff like that. It's what the three people who couldn't play for shit did when they got into the studio. Turned everything <laughs> up to 11. And I, fucking... I think labels are fun in, in a lot of the, the costumes, whether it's glam or metal or death, and we all do it for whatever. It's fun. It's, it's entertaining. It's theatrics. It kind of puts, it's frosty on the Hold cake, it. but if there's no cake, it's, it's still crap. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So people have tend to go a little too deep into stuff and whatever. 
Um, but what's interesting is when I listen to the older stuff and then like, like say your new album, huge production difference. Mm -hmm. Who was producing your stuff back then? It, I really felt like you guys fell short. I don't think the sound was really captured as well. Well, yeah, back in stuff. 1982, back, yeah. back like, well, the yeah. hell and... Yeah. I, I, I disagree with you completely. Absolutely disagree with you completely. Because if those albums had been better produced, they wouldn't have had the impact. Okay. They were raw as fuck, and they were three angry young kids in a studio just trashing the shit out of stuff, right? We did not give a fuck at that point. I, you know... I've, I've come out and said, would it work now? Absolutely not. And even, even with Arve, when I did the mixing and the production on Arve, I still didn't want it to be squeaky clean. Why does fucking, why, you know, it loses all its fucking human element. Arve lost a lot of its human element because the fucking drummer couldn't play the parts. All those drums are programmed. We had to leave the drums on there programmed because the files that I got back from that person were unusable. It was shit. There was no fucking attempt. There was nothing in it. I like to think that I've sort of progressed a little bit in my playing, right? But back then, we walked into Neat Records one day to do some demos. And David Wood, who owned that place, said, can I have a word, guys? Have you got enough songs for an album? Yes. Right, you've got three days. Get in. And that was it. Welcome to Hell was done, mixed, and in the bag in three days. And that, that was it. And it, it was a moment captured in time. It was the stars aligned, boom, venom, you're going to be the next thing. It could have been any fucking band. It just happened to be us. We were fucking lucky. Simple as that. I was, I've said a million times, I was a kid from Newcastle who wrote some tunes and people dig them. I was lucky. But I production, think... no. The black metal I... as well, slightly better, but... I think that's it. If I could just interject just on the production value there is if you listen, if you listen to, if you listen to Welcome, everything from the first <laughs> singles to Welcome to Hell to Possessed and all of the singles from Manitou, Seven Gates, uh, Die Hard, Bursting Out. If you listen to, if you listen to all those songs, each, uh, each one is not comparable it's the same band with the same exuberance, with the same kind of energy, with the same kind of arrogance and with the same look. But uh, Welcome to Hell does not sound like black metal. No. Black metal does not hold the same production value as it was with Satan, nor does Possessed, nor do any of the singles. From If you listen to Bloodlust and then you listen to Warhead, they're completely uh, 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 juxtaposed to each other. But And I think that was the... That was part of the non-conformity, what Jeff was just saying, the non-plan. It was, we've got some songs. Why don't you do a single? They'd go in, record them. It just happened, and that was it. Then the next time they'd go in and do that, there was no, there was no planning on um, looking at the production of the last album and making a better production or, or thinking we have to get the same kind of production values into the next record they just went in and did it mm -hmm. and every single record and i think what's very unusual about venom the original band mm -hmm. was that if you look at uh, uh, lots and lots of bands you can see they have a classic album and then they have 
certain songs from certain other albums and a lot of wastage. But with Venom, every single, if we go out and play a show, even now, you're talking 40 years later, we cannot not play Countless Battery. We cannot not play a Die Hard or a Bloodlust or a Witching Hour. And yeah. you think of fucking hell, these songs are 40 years old and the audience still wants to hear them because they're great songs to play. They're great songs to hear. And that, uh, that whatever that special thing is about a song composition, mm-hmm. which was derived from those classic Priest songs that Jeff loved and they were all sing, you know, you can sing along to Exciter, you can sing along to The Ripper, you can, you know, all of those kind of songs. That was, that was the one element that carried through everything. So they didn't worry about production, they just focused on playing songs and, and that was what they were. So it was an individual thing that most bands, I mean, you could pick up a Machine Head album or, or a, you know, or a, As I Lay Dying or whatever, and, and the production values are comparable. The same with Exodus, there's a sound there from the beginning all the way through. Right. With Metallica, there's, you know, they kind of changed later on once they started experimenting. But the early albums all had that kind of synergy. I, I do like Raw. I, you know, I, I do agree. and I'm not saying it should have been a cleaned up album. I think just selfishly, I would have liked to hear the guitars up a little bit louder. I'm not oh, saying yes. I, I, I like a... You know what I'm saying? I even changed just, just a little more in the mix. Like, yeah. it just, it it just a, feels it like... When you revisit, when Jeff, when Jeff, you know, when we did all of it, and the Empire of Evil stuff that me and Jeff did, um, he, he wanted to produce the stuff. And when we got to Arve, we were signed with a Nuclear Blast. Uh, they were going, who do you want to produce? And they, there was some mentions of producers. Mm-hmm. John Sazula, who was uh, helping to manage, had a great producer in America, upcoming guy, really wanted to do it and everything else. And Jeff said he wanted to, he wanted to do it. Um, and it was a big, a big moment because this was when we did Empire. It was for ourselves. We weren't affixed to any label. We didn't have to right. answer to anybody. Now we've just signed a deal with Nuclear Blast. It's like, wow, shit, you got to deliver it. So there was a lot of pressure on Jeff. And the the first thing they did when he wanted to do it was ask me, "Do you think Jeff could do it? Is he up to this?" And I was like, "Hey, he can kill this." And and who knows us better than him? Yeah. So. You know, you could go to some other person who might give you great production, but is that your identity? So for for me, it was like, well, that's a that's a that answers itself that question. The the person who knows us as musicians and what we should sound like yeah. better than anybody is us. And I don't want to produce balls of shit out of me, but he's really good at it and he fucking loves it. And so it's like that's a, an easy answer. Um, so then we can he could experiment with that, but in the early days of Venom, that that didn't happen. It was it was mm-hmm. like you know Conrad once did a description I think on the Studio Fifty Four VHS that they did, um, uh, which was the ultimate whatever it was ultimate revenge video, and he said Venom's like a brick. You pick it up here, you throw it across the room, and it just goes boom, it lands there, and then we pick it up again and we throw it there. Each time you throw it different bits come off and it makes a different noise and it, it it smashes different stuff but that's what venom is and i think when you when you listen to those recordings there was no finesse there was no uh, uh, experience there was just the the moment and that's why you get that kind it, of thing it didn't stop me and my friends from listening to it and you know along with the other albums you know what i mean it was just like we're like oh man i just wish you had more guitar in it you know 
Yeah. Those remixes that they did. That box set that they released with like better mixes, uh, or what did they do? They remastered. I can't remember what they did, but uh, yeah, yeah. Those sound those sound killer because you can hear the guitars and everything's uh, it's cleaned up a bit more. They removed some of like the uh, like the low mud that's happening in there, like a hundred to uh, like three hundred hertz. Like some of that stuff is like scooped out, and where you're like, oh okay. Now th- then, there's some a lot. So you can more hear the instruments, yeah, guitars. Yeah, I I mean I can, and I'm an audiophile, so that. But I don't know. There is, but there is something about those. I don't know. You slap on the fucking vinyl for black metal, and you're like, "Wow, it just sounds." I I think that brick description is perfect. It's like it sounds like a fucking truck. It just it's a mo- moving. <laughs> I think that's the key, and that's the key with what we've got on this new album, and what was missing on Arvier. Although the songmanship was there, the performances and the production, but. Um, what we managed to capture was two out of three people, the, the energy. It's about the transition is to keep that who you are, that vibrance, that exuberance and that energy, put that into the music, but then have a bit more control over, you know, how mm-hmm. it, how it works together. And, and, uh, uh, and um, what we had on Arvia was we had, our exuberance, but the third member, the passion didn't seem to be there. So the performance wasn't there. So it was a bit more static. So we had to go a different direction on the new record with Jeremy, with, with uh, Jeremy as it is, uh, uh, who has to describe his war machine nickname. Um, yeah. Uh, just reminding him there um, uh, is that Jeremy plays with nothing but passion, which is exactly what me and Jeff do when we perform. And, what we tried to capture was after doing six, six, seven hundred live shows to then get to do an album, we were already vibrant. We knew when we put the instruments on and we started to play, yeah. that, that energy was going to be there. What we then had to do was make sure we didn't lose that and that went into the vinyl. So when you put that record on, from the moment Arvia Satanis begins its overture and you hear the... The, the 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 beautiful voice and then you yeah. it comes in. We wanted it to feel like we were actually in your house playing because that's what happens when you put on Welcome to Hell. That's what happens when you put on Black Metal, uh, and that's what we wanted that kind of thing. And I think he did an amazing job on that record. And the new one is even better. I'm just plugging the new record. It's even no, better. please. I promise. I promise. Please. Uh, I just love you. I, I think you're a great guitar player. So that's more my that's my my take on that little. Thank you very much. I thank you for that. I thank you for that. <laughs> I did well, but I thank you. Jeremy's now left Arizona and he's gone. I don't know where he's gone. He's in a waiting room somewhere. But I think he's driving home. Man, I, I just have to say that uh, Jeff's a fantastic guitar player up and down. And Sean, it's really a pleasure to uh, play with uh, both of these guys live because they're both uh, completely tight and well-accomplished musicians and i'm listening intently to what they're doing and they're both great uh jeff is so killer such a fucking rhythm powerhouse it makes it easy to play drums i mean you go up there and if your guitar player is on point your bass player slash singer is on point all i have to do is literally just be a fucking two guns blazing and then just throwing fuck yous out and uh you know they say I would say the same thing about Jeremy. I never have to turn around and wonder how he's going to come out of a fucking fill. 
You know? one, one of the greatest things, one of the greatest things you can ever watch is the fucking uh, Dynamo Festival. 125,000 people. And when it comes to that break and die hard, ride the wings of 80s. I'm up on the drum rides and I'm wondering when the motherfucker's going to come out with the film. I had to do that every fucking night. You know, and I mean, come on, let's just let's just be fucking honest here. I've 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 said fucking loads of times, and I'm going to bore you again. Since I fucking pegged it two years ago, I'm not fucking holding back on any cunt now. It's like he was fucking shit night after night. It was as fucking simple as that. The songs were inconsistent. He didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He couldn't remember the fucking stuff. And yes, we had to fucking watch him and playing in Philadelphia. <laughs> Fucking the first night of a fucking tour to promote Ave, and we're kicking a bloodstained, and he fucked it up twice. It's like in front of an over not the sort of the crowd wasn't sold out. That venue was oversold, and they had the fucking side doors open. There was people in the street, and he fucked that song up twice. You know, and uh, this is what I'm trying to get at now. You know, Jeremy's saying, "Oh yeah, Jeff's a great tight player. I hope I am. I've worked." I think what what tightened my playing up was definitely when we did the album Resurrection. And I worked with a, a studio engineer, mixer, a German guy called Charlie Balfind. And uh, he really changed my studio approach, my studio playing. That transferred into other playing. And then the next guy was another German who fucking taught me just about everything I know now, which is Kalle Knecht. But playing-wise... Um, you know, I like to think that I've improved and I am fucking, you know, reasonably tight. Obviously, when you're playing live, you know, things are going to drift, but they don't drift like they move and breathe and groove like fucking, hey, they fucking move and breathe and groove. It was just basically out of fucking time, you twat. Don't fucking tell me about moving and breathing. And if, if these two don't want to fucking say that, I'm saying it for them because that's what they're thinking, right? Well, you know. And don't hold back anything. <laughs> you wanted the fucking truth, there you go. But no, what I'm saying is Jeremy is a fucking joy to play with. That's you know what good. it is? When I've got those fucking files off Jeremy, and uh, I remember saying to Jeremy at one point, don't overcomplicate it for fuck's sake. This, this is venom at the end of the day, right? Yeah. The, the files that I've got off Jeremy now for his drums, I wanted Jeremy to send me what he sounds like. I didn't want to get snare top, snare bottom, snare this, snare that, a million fucking snare mics, and then mix a snare sound. That wouldn't be Jeremy's snare sound. Okay? So what I said to Jeremy, it was a totally different way of doing it. Mix your snare, send me your snare, send me your tom files, send me your kick drum, send me your overhead, and that's all I got of them. Everything as clean as fuck, all I've done it's a compression, bit of EQ, a little bit of reverb here and there. And on a couple of tracks, I'll tell you now, Jeremy, there's a cheeky little snare sample laying underneath somewhere. Oh, <laughs> but the only right, time you'll notice it is if you take it out. That's the okay. only time. Yeah, sure. That's the only time you'll notice it. Um, but no, everything was as clean as fuck when it came over. And that has helped me to clean up the guitar sound. The guitar sounds are crunch sounds. They're not heavily overdriven or all that kind of stuff anymore. Tony's bass sound is a lot cleaner than it was on Ave, but it's massive. And it's still got that pick hitting the fucking strings at the top end of it as well. And I'm really pleased with these, these new mixes. 
I think it sounds just like a band in a fucking room at the, at the yeah. minute. And that's that's just that's the exciting. basic mix. There's, there's none of the fucking polish and fucking anything else on it at the minute. They're just preliminary mixes. Um, but no, when I got those files, the first, the, the first set of files I got through, and I just lined everything up, did a basic balance on everything, and pressed play, and just sat back and listened and went, oh, thank fuck for that. Because... <laughs> When I got the first, when I got the Good first job. set of files for Arve, mm-hmm. when I got the first set of drum files for Arve, this is the truth. Here's the scoop. I got the files, and I had said to the studio engineer in Newcastle, "You also send the files to Germany to Color Connect, who is going to be editing those files." Okay, mm-hmm. I got the files. The first file I played was the stereo room mics, so I could hear the whole kit. I put the headphones on and I thought, right, I'll just have a listen. I didn't even know what fucking song it was. It was Ave Satanus, but I could not recognise any part of it whatsoever. Right? As I took the headphones off, my Skype thing went. I went, oh, it's Callie. Put Callie on. Callie normally goes, hey, motherfucker, how are you doing? Right? He didn't even say that. He went, what the fuck is this? That was his reaction, Right? straight away we knew we were in trouble at that point and the drum files and the playing or the course of what what was it 11 songs it just got yeah. worse and worse and worse and that is the truth my friends that is the absolute fucking truth it got worse and worse to the point where we had to make a decision and say if we use these drums it is going to kill 11 great songs and that is such a right. tough call, you know. I mean, just being as a, uh, I mean, that's a well, fucking it, it tough was, call. It, it was impossible. I mean, even I, I even spoke to him, uh, the drummer, and uh, offered to be whatever he needed to be able to do the best that he wanted. Whatever he needed, I, I could drive up and we just we could go in somewhere and I'd play guitar. Whatever he needed you know, to get whatever we, to get out of him the best that he could deliver. And I thought to myself, naively, obviously looking back, that after being off the drums and kind of out of the industry for... 17 years. 17 years, that uh, when when the thing began, he, he, you know, he was doing a job on a manual labouring thing. I thought, I'm giving you an opportunity here to kind of come back and to you can get all the glory he has these great songs we've got shows coming up i mean we've done a tour this is like this is your moment and i thought he's gonna kill it and when jeff was going to me i don't know if he's gonna be able to do this and it was and we wrote the songs jeff wrote the songs or the music specifically with him in mind so it wasn't as if we were challenging him in any way we were writing towards him and I just thought he's going to kill it. And I kept saying to Jeff, he, he'll kill it. He'll kill it because this is his opportunity to come back, big comeback. And he just couldn't. Uh, uh, the passion wasn't there. I, I don't know if he just didn't understand the stuff. He didn't take up the offer for help. And it was just a no-go. And the, the thing for me was um, <clears throat> I hadn't heard the stuff so much. Jeff and Callie had been listening to it. I was just getting reference from it. Abaddon didn't want me to go and help, I guess, because he just didn't take it up. Uh, but it was when the the management 
Pedro, I had to, took uh, Billy from Testament and John, and I spoke to them, uh, just did the description, and then uh, uh, Nuclear Blast. And they just went, you're joking, right? <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not joking. That's, that's what we've got. And they went, well, you can't, you can't, you have to find a way to do it. The only way to do it was how Jeff did it. And that was it. So it was unfortunate, but we didn't have a choice. You know, if your label who you've just signed for is going, you must be fucking joking. And the management we had, which was a great management team, were going, you must be fucking joking. <laughs> then we had to do something about it. So as hard as the choice was, there was no choice. We had to do it, you know. I had it. When, you, when you're saying there that, you know, the songs were written with him in mind, and they were. You know, you listen to the beginning of, um, for anybody out there who's not familiar with it, listen to the beginning of um, Metal We Bleed. You know, that pattern, it's too loud for the fucking crowd. That's all he had to do. He had to play the same fill that he played yeah. back in 1985, and it would it would have fit, right? Now, there's another part that leads into the song Metal We Bleed. One, two, three, four, five, six. Tony said I wrote these specifically. I fucking did. Down, 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 right? Live like an angel. Same fucking fills. It's the same accents, the same everything. And a lot of the songs were like that. There was no fucking... There was no Dave Lombardo stuff. There was no Neil Peart stuff because I knew we couldn't fucking do it. And that, that was the same thing. I said that was the problem. He didn't. He didn't recognize his own work. He didn't recognize his own fucking style. It was like, and I remember I sent him a message. I sent him thirty-three fucking audio files. Right. I sent him eleven full demos with programmed drums. Right. Okay. This is the basics of it. Do that. Blah, blah, blah. These are the tempos, right? There you go. I sent him 11 guitar stems with click and I sent him 11 without click because I know what people are like with clicks. Yeah. I like a beep, 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 beep. That might annoy the shit out of Tony. He might like the dock, 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 dock. So I thought if you've got it with the click, you've got the option or you just say to the engineer, can you put a different click on, the, on this one for us? So we have 33 fucking files. He couldn't even open the fucking email for the files. It was like, I didn't get the fucking files. I didn't get the fucking files. And then his girlfriend walks past him in the back in the back while I'm fucking Skyping. And by this time, I'd lost the fucking plot. And she pressed the fucking button. And next thing I know, I'm listening to my guitar stems going. And he turned around and went, poor another fucking Jack. And say, oh, fuck's sake, man. But the thing was, when he got in the studio, I said, right, Skype. They've got a big fuck-off television in the studio. Put me on Skype if there's any fucking problems whatsoever. Right? Listen to the track Bloodstained. What did I get off him? And that was all the way through. And for 11 songs, there wasn't one fucking fill anywhere. Nothing. I even said to him, record your fill separate. It's more work for me, but I'll put them in. Nothing. Lazy. That's what just, it is. Fucking lazy. Just was, wasn't interested and... Wasn't didn't, fucking interested. Didn't and that's why I say it was a joy. When, 
you know, when I opened those fucking emails up, and I was opening the fucking Dropbox files, and there's Jeremy's fucking drum file. Well, what did you send me, Jeremy? What was it, nine or 11 tracks? That was it yeah. for your drums? Yeah, um, yeah, because I, I condensed yeah. everything oh. down. No, yeah, I condensed the overheads. Needed, yeah. yeah. But that, you see, that that was that was all I needed. If I'd get that from him. And as Tony said, this was a massive opportunity because from 1998 onwards, he had done fuck all musically. Tony's been out there still fucking playing music, still recordings, working with other people, doing his acting fucking thing. I was off sessioning for, I was sessioning for fucking Scooter for fuck's sake, biggest techno band in the fucking world. I was sessioning for German bands. I had my own stuff. I was recording. <clears throat> doing, oh, I was still heavily involved in music. Still doing it, still doing it. Still the Mantis fucking project in Japan, Independence Day Festival. Okay, what did he do? Work at the fucking call centre. Proves a fucking point. It was it's, the I think that's that's the, was the culmination of the whole thing b- between myself and Jeff in particular. We were just disappointed. We'd worked disappointed. So, absolutely, we'd worked so absolutely. Hard. We'd worked so so hard, and and we wanted it to work. We wanted it to happen. We tried as hard as we could to make it happen, to let it happen, and he just his heart wasn't in it. You know he. He he just wanted to get as much money as he could as fast as he could and not do his laboring job. And at the end of the day, particularly in 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 everything we do, hence the reason it's called Venom Incorporated, is because we just do music. That's what we want to do. Yeah, all kinds of music, including our band. And so for me and Jeff, it was just about the music. It wasn't about being rock stars, getting free money, selling merchandise getting free booze every night uh, or girls it was about the music the, the, where we the whole point was to be culminate on stage in front of an audience and that's when it, all the magic happened and we needed a, we needed a musician we didn't need a rock star we needed a musician and it forced us to you know it forced us we were on a tour of America it was not going well it was evident that the the album material was was not going to be played well enough for for us. And um, Chuck Billy, uh, we had Jeremy, uh, was our sound guy because he's done Sepultura and Exodus and he was out as a sound guy. And Chuck just pulled me to one side. He went, you know, Jeremy is a drummer too. And I was like, is he? And he went, yeah, come with me. So he took me off and played me some stuff that was Jeremy. I was like, you're kidding. And I was like, yeah. So I basically took the album put it in Jeremy's hot, sweaty hand and went, can you listen to that and tell me if you can play any of it? And he he listened. Uh, we went to one rehearsal. He played first five songs or something like off straight off the cuff, exactly like they were on the album. And I was like, oh my God. And then him and Jeff went and did a bit more work on the rest on the set. And it was like, okay, this this guy, not only does he know us, but uh, we really all get on. We have the same way of thinking. He's a complete consummate musician. So it gave us an advantage because he knew how we should sound. He knew how to mix sound. And also he had a talent and the amount of power that he plays with is like fucking hell. But his precision is there. And he stuck to the game. He stuck to the game. And on the new album, he's managed to put his own identity on it, which was the most amazing thing. I'm looking forward to that. 
But um, yeah, he was a perfect a perfect fit. But even still, you know, we we ended up on a European tour. Um, Abaddon wanted to take time out because he he just got married to a, uh, his new wife. They were having a baby. He wanted to take some time out. One month might be two months, and we didn't know. And so uh, I made the call to go. We'll still do the tour because we were being pressured by the label and management. You have this tour lined up. We decided to do it, and and thought, okay, well. We can bring Jeremy in. He can, if we do a tour with Jeremy, we'll find out if it really works, if he likes being in there, if we all get on. And um, and nobody will think, you know, we're replacing anybody because Jeremy's our sound guy. And, and at the end, if Abaddon's coming back or whatever, but it was very, very apparent very quickly when we began that Jeremy was going to take over the position and he was the right person for the job because our live energy just went up through the roof. Well, you can't and, get anything better than, than, you know, if you have something sucks, then get something better. It's like my, my car, my car was uh, getting repaired. I didn't want to get a better rental car than what I have. And they go, yeah. get my car fixed and go back into my car. I'm like, no, yes. what's the worst car you got in the lot? Because I want to get in my car and feel like a king. Exactly. So exactly. how are you guys going to go down? You know, that's that's a problem all the bands have when they get Dave Lombardo to come play for them. And then it goes off and the other drivers come back and they're like, oh. Yeah. Yeah, we I did. Mean, uh, sorry. Uh, I was just just in response to that. We had some dates that were cancelled for 2020, and they've been put into 2021. And of course, with COVID and all of this going on, the travel restrictions so that the times we can play keep yeah. moving. And so, uh, even just recently, but I've had it twice before this year, where they've said, "Oh, we might try and push you in to these dates into 2021." It looks like that might be a good time to go. I was like, of course, it's got to be conditional on the virus and travel and vaccines and everything else. We don't want to catch shit because they've got families and Jeff's ha- had his heart thing and his partner has, you know, some issues that she needs to be uh, uh, clean from it. So it was like, okay, we have to be careful. And then someone said to me again for about the third time, um, if, if, you guys, if you guys are okay and we're okay in Europe and Jeremy can't get out of America because they're still restricted, would you be okay maybe putting a debt in? And I said, never again. I said, this band is the three of us, and that's it. And I said, I'm not going there again. This band is the three of us. Uh, that's our sound. You know, whatever we are, that's what me and Jeff were looking for. Well, I think for. it's healthy, that too. I is, mean, you know, yeah. the band is your life. It's not just like, so if you feel crappy about it, you, you go to bed feeling crappy about it, you wake up feeling crappy about it. I don't know how you guys went as long as you did going through the studio and pulling, pulling someone through the studio and being like, yeah, I'm going on the road now with this. I, you know, I, I don't know him, so I'm not going to speak bad of him, but in a production standpoint, when you're working with somebody and you're pulling through the big part, you know, you guys gave more than you than necessary, I think. I think, I think that's it though, Sean. I think that's the thing. It's what I was kind of saying about, you know, capturing that spirit is that, you know, we're all, we all make music and, and those guys love producing and, uh, you know, in their own things as well. And, it, you know, for me, I've done it for people and I do produce stuff and done stuff for movies and stuff, but, uh, or TV, but it's like, it's not what I like to do. It's like, it really bores the fuck out of me. You know, so yeah. I need a good engineer. I need a good engineer to do all the work so I can come in and go, I don't like it. Or I like to turn that up, I turn that down. But they, they really like that. But, I think that is studio. So each one of us, uh, but certainly as a, as a community, the production in the studio or what, what we get out of a song in the end of a day is kind of easier because you have those two guys 
I'm never worried. I'm never worried. I just send what they ask me to send and, and then I leave it to them. And when they go, I need this, it's okay. So I, I can relax a bit. But if you, so that bit's kind of the easy bit, but if you can make magic on stage together where you're not having to talk to each other, it just is there. That's what every band is looking for. That's that special something. Mm-hmm. You know, that first think, rehearsal we had in uh, Bristol where uh, we were in that little shit fucking, yeah. it was real shit. I had a shit drum set and uh, yeah. I think I broke seven sticks. I broke the snare top. Yes. Uh, the whole fucking drum set was falling apart. And that was just the first time we rehearsed. And it was like so much pressure because, I mean, the next day we're basically playing Thanks. in Venom's backyard. Like, I mean, we had four shows around the UK. I was like, oh, fuck. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's go. And it was like, I, I've never played drums like, uh, I've never played drums like I do in this band. Like, I am very, if, if you see me play in the absence, I'm very controlled. Everything is like a a bit of a machine, you know? And then with this band, it's like the lids off. And, you know, these guys bring, these guys bring a level of energy, which uh, I had never experienced other than, I mean, being like a kid, like the first time when you're like 15. So it was like, oh, cool. Okay. I understand. And then as a music fan, you can go, I understand what needs to happen. And then you're like, you know, as a person, you're like, fuck, I'm 30 minutes in. I don't know if I'm going to make it another hour, but give me a Red Bull and let's go. <laughs> and then that kind of just became like what it is, you know? And and I want to say this about Ave is that's a killer record. Um, start to finish, it's a killer album. There There is amazing substance as far as songwriting goes. And the fact that the drums were written by Jeff made it a very... And, it changed it from being a loose production. It changed it for me because it made it like it was already a roadmap of what the next record could sound like. So I could play in my, I'm a bit more rigid than Abaddon is. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rigid drummer. I'm, I'm harder and stiffer. And that's cool because now on this new record, I can play, I can just be myself and it's not going to be like, well, I mean, on on Ave, he was kind of, I mean, it's it's a totally different band now. It doesn't sound like a totally different band. It sounds like a continuation. It sounds like a grown outfit. It sounds yeah. like it's going to be a proper second release. And our fans are going to hear it and be uh, mega stoked. They're going to be mega stoked. They're going to be like, oh, that's this. And I did my fucking homework. And I included fills from X or I pulled them from here or I grabbed some shit from a uh, you know, deep purple in rock that I mean, I, you know, I mean, I pulled from all over where I'm like, well, let's hit them where it fucking counts. Yeah. And, oh, you need Slayer. Gotcha. OK, Lombardo. Gotcha. OK, yeah. let's let's fucking up the ante a little bit. And it's uh, it was a great it was a great environment. It's been a great environment. And it's uh, like hearkening back to what Tony said, it's. It's us on stage, whether we're in some fucking shithole in Ottawa, not that we've ever been. If we're in some shithole in uh, fucking Florida, not that we've ever been. Uh, if we're in some shithole in South America, not that we've ever been. Uh, or or we're playing fucking Hellfest. It doesn't yeah. matter. It doesn't matter who's watching. It doesn't matter if, if anything's happening. If I look back, if, if these guys look back and they're smiling, then we're having a good time and we're just having a good time and throwing it at them, throwing a brick across the fucking stage and whatever. I mean, 
shit falls over, shit breaks. I mean, it's always a good time, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's it's evident. the three of you together now, the, the energy seems crazy. It's, you know, the way you guys get along, it's, it's, it's inspiring. I mean, you can tell how you heighten the, the excitement when you talk about it, you know? Well, I think that's, yeah. it's, it sounds if, exciting. If you, if you look online, uh, particularly ones that stand out for me, I mean, there's club shows like St. Vitus in Brooklyn, in New York, which is a small club. It's one of my favorite places, but, but it's a small club. Um, but we played there, I don't know how many times me and Jeff have played there now, but if you take us at Bloodstock, where there's just three guys with a couple of cabs, a drum set in the middle, a huge stage, and just one black backdrop floating with no pyro and no lights because it's daytime, or, or you take a, a Hellfest with you know a couple of uh, crosses lit up, which they kindly did for us, or Vakin, where we played the, the original main stage, uh, where we headlined that one last season. Um, but again, we didn't have anything special. We had our backdrop, and that was it. A couple of cabs either side, uh, one eight by ten, two two by fours, and whatever. And um, But we filled the area. We filled the area with ourselves. You know, and if you watch Jeremy's performance at, at Bloodstock Online, uh, or you watch Jeff, who, who was 11 weeks he'd been clinically dead they had to save his life and this was 11 weeks later you watch the energy that's coming out of us that's the it's the the music and the and the, and the oneness of us connecting with each other and so you watch it there 15 16,000 people or 20,000 people 25,000 people at Vakan or whatever it was and and you, you see the energy we fill the stage with just with our with ourselves imagine that then cramped into a club like CBGB's or or you know, uh, or or a, a survive. It's like fucking hell. You're not getting out alive. And if you do get out, you're one of us by the time you go. And that's what we bring to it. You know, there's some classic photos. There's one where uh, a video, one where, uh, and they've got a picture of it where we were playing somewhere in America. And it was, you know, a small place, and people were so close to us. And there's one person looking up at Jeff like that in the capture of the picture, and he leant over while hanging out a cord and and did a crucifix on it, did an inverted <laughs> And the guy was like, oh my God. And someone caught it on picture, but it's also on video. But it's moments like that, you know, <laughs> that, um, that's that awesome. those are so special. And that's what we, we actually connect the audience. We give that kind of connection to. When we did, uh, when we did um, uh, uh, Alcatraz Festival in Belgium, it was a big festival and uh, we, played this stage and it was a huge apron and when we finished that was it we go but there was a whole lot of people still hanging on the barrier i just jumped off stage and security were like what the fuck so i went up and i was like shane everybody we gotta go and stuff like that and then i climbed back up and i leave and this the the head of security came to find me said can i take a picture would you sign this and i was like yeah cool and he went oh my god nobody's ever done that just jumped off stage after they played to greet the fans you guys are on another level and it's like but that's what it's about for us it's about the music and the connection to the music you know and the connection to the fans you know and after you know jeff talked about the history of of those first singles and, and black metal 40 years that was out there there's fans that listen to that stuff and it still makes them feel electric and that's a great privilege yeah. and that's why for us, the music is everything and the fans are so important, you know? So and we experienced that a lot when we were in, we did uh, that last one we did in South America. Yeah. Uh, those fans down there had, uh, I mean, 
Venom had hardly touched down there, um, hardly really touched. And there were some guys that came out that were like, I have been hoping my whole life to see you guys. And I mean, we're talking like 50 year old men with full tears, full tears, having like a really hard time just being around us going, excited. Oh my God, that was the best show I have ever seen, ever. Like full That's awesome. it was like It was like, wow, man, hell yeah. I broke a lot of symbols because of, I wanted you to feel fucking that. I, you know, I gave more for that reaction out of you. And that's something that that fan will never forget ever. And we, yeah. we sit, we take the time and we talk and hang out and do every photo and anything that anybody wants to do because like Tony said, it, it's important and it's about the music and it's about the, the feeling that it had given us as fans or uh, the feeling that I mean, I should, I still get that as a fan. So that's make, that makes it sound like I'm far removed from that reality, which isn't the case. I mean, I'm very much a fan still. I mean, my record collection is ever growing. My, uh, my love for music is ever growing. So, I mean, it's just, but it's I, wonderful to be able to give back. I think that's what Jay's just said. That's a very interesting point. We've been to places in the world and, and you, you could be forgiven sometimes to go online and see uh, comments from, you know, fans about the original band and this one is, that's not Kronos because usually it's about me or this isn't true because it's not this or it's not that. And we may be playing, uh, we play our own stuff, of course, but we, we play classic Venom stuff as well because why not? You know, if Jeff wrote it, he wants to play it, let's play it. And if the fans want to hear it, we'll play it. Um, so you can you can take a Countess Patrick and go, well, they weren't on the record and they went in the band and that's not the classic, but... When you go to somewhere like, I don't know, Chile, or you go to Peru, or, or, or Argentina, or Paraguay, or Uruguay, or you go to you know, uh, Australia, New Zealand, or China, and you're playing those songs, and you have that reaction from the people who come up and just want to talk to you, and they're crying, they are crying, going, oh my God, I never thought I'd ever hear see this uh, live in my life. Then you realize it's, it's not just about the people. It's, it's also about the music, the music they connected. And, you know, we're fortunate to have uh, Mantis there. So, and, and, and when we began, it was one of the things that I kept saying to Jeff, I wanted him to experience the, I wanted him to realize, because he's quite a humble guy and uh, he doesn't understand, I just wrote some fucking songs. And I know he says that a lot now. And well, or how but, awesome of a guitar player he is. <laughs> yeah, but he just, uh, he you actually, are. It's, it, because he says it a lot in interviews now, there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of, you could kind of think, oh, it's just his mantra now. But it, he actually, it was a conversation we had and he was going, he didn't get it. And I was going, Jeff, you have mm. to meet everybody because everybody has a story of when they met your music mm-hmm. and what it meant to you. And you're in Newcastle, in your bedroom, at your mum's house, writing a song on your guitar, and then you're in some shit town hall rehearsing with your band, and then you play a local show, and then someone tells you that the album's selling well, and then they take you to a foreign country, and there's another band there, and now you play a couple of shows. But um, there's people who've grown up, and you've meant so much to them, and- you should hear their stories. And, you know, now he's sick of hearing the stories because there's so many. But he's had so many amazing stories told to him from people going, oh, my God. And it's difficult and it's tiresome sometimes because you've just done a load of show, you're knackered and you just want to go to 
rest for a bit, but he has the patience of a saint. And if you come with 90 fucking collected records, he'll sit and sign every single one. And if you've got a story that lasts an hour, he'll sit and listen to it, even though he may be thinking, I just want to sleep. But he has that patience. And that's the generosity of him, you know? Uh, but I think now he realizes, because we've done so much in 10 years, from Empire through, we played practically everywhere, from Russia to fucking, you know, uh, New Zealand to Tasmania, where nobody goes to. We played everywhere in the world, multiple times. So many, so many shows. And he's had the opportunity from fans from 12, 16 to 50 to 60, tell him, oh my God, do you realize what you did to, for my life? And I think yeah. that's an amazing thing. And it, it, it becomes very, very much special. You know, not political, not rock story, just a musical connection that you made with someone. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. I can yeah, remember I, listening back to those two albums. I mean, it was mostly the two first ones, whatever. But, but uh, as far as your guitar playing, you, you were totally underrated. And that, that's, that was my point about the production. Mm-hmm. When I listened to, I, I, before I, I, get, I did this tonight, I went back and I listened to everything, you know, kind of go through everything. So I listened to the old one and I listened to the, the newest one. And then just oh. your guitar playing, just jumping out is what my point is. I'm like, oh, that's what I, you know what I mean? That's nice. Right. Right. It's really Amen, nice. You're just going to enjoy the guitar as much. I think that's what it was. It's not taking away, but believe me, I've listened to those other ones countless times with, you know, Metallica yeah. and the old Megadeth albums and, you know, with my friends, you know, drinking. So there's nothing, believe me, I, I love those albums. But I love your guitar playing. I'm happy I can hear it now, I think. You know. Right. Do you know, you know what it is with, with the guitar playing thing? I've, I've always I've always said this, and this is, is true he's now. Never I mean, said, he's, never, he's never said this. No. <laughs> Do you know what it is? Um, <laughs> as, as I'm sitting here now, I'm six months away. Six months away from being 60 years old. And... I'm exactly the same as when I first started or when the original lineup was at its height. I have got absolutely no desire whatsoever to be a virtuoso, to be fucking, you know, Mr. Fucking Theory or anything like that, Mr. Sweeping or fucking Peggio's. You can, it's like there's and I just, yeah, millions of players who can do it. I just wanted, I, th- well, I really. I just wanted to interject. I really thought you were going to go, I've literally got no idea what I'm doing. You know what it is? Older and wiser, older, yes, wiser. No, I mean, I watched, I was watching a couple of those Facebook things that I did, you know, where I'm, I'm playing the songs and I'm explaining the song. And I watched the one about when I did War off Ave. Mm-hmm. I was just sitting having some lunch and I thought, oh, I haven't seen that for ages. I'll watch that. And I got that explaining the solo and I said, right, um, it's an arpeggio. <laughs> I haven't a fucking clue what it is, but it sounds good. I don't know what the notes are. I don't know what the fucking, the, the, the scale is or whatever. I haven't a clue. Some 12 year old out there would have looked at it and went, oh, that's a fucking one of those, it is one of those, one of those. <laughs> You know what it is? I'm not fucking interested. I'm really no, not write, interested. You write the songs. There are people out there, well, well-known guitarists that are known to be like crazy, crazy awesome. But you get mm-hmm. halfway through the song of, of them being awesome, you're like, I just really don't have to listen to it. It just literally feels like they're practicing for a whole album. Yeah, you know? I mean, that, that's... You're writing, that's you're writing songs, and, 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 yeah. and that's the content. It's not... 
one big guitar solo. I've always said, I've always said, if I, this is my studio here, right? I'll give you a quick, quick look around. There you go. There's the studio. There you go. That's I'm it, right? Be, I'm going to be safe now, somewhere. If, <laughs> if, I, if I come into this studio for eight hours a day, which I normally do, right? If I come I, in here that, for eight I, hours a day. I come in the studio for eight hours a day. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to sit down and practice fucking minutes. scales for eight hours, right? <laughs> I do not want to sit down and practice fucking scales for eight hours a fucking day. You know, if I'm coming in here, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave having either mixed something or wrote a new song. I do not sit and practice. I just don't. The only time I practice is before we go on tour and I practice our songs. I don't practice anything new because I don't fucking need to. I can't remember the last thing new that I fucking learned. It's like I'm it really, really doesn't interest me you know and i mean when it comes down to guitar solos i go off what fucking the late great gary moore said in a so in an interview many many years ago the guitar solo in a song should take the song to another level because at the end of the day the guitar solo is essentially replacing the vocals and the vocals are the storytellers right if it's not as important and it hasn't got great melody or anything what the fuck's it doing there sometimes guitar solos these days sound just like another texture. Right. It's like something which is just put there. Oh, we've got a breakdown. We've got a middle eight. We need a guitar solo. So that's the guitarist's opportunity to have a wank, a wank for 20 seconds. It's like, what the fuck? You know, I mean, a lot of people will berate me for this. A lot of people will disagree with me for this. But, you know, I'm old school. And if I put a priest song on that I haven't heard for years or I put a Kiss song on I haven't heard for years, or a Gary Moore song I haven't heard for years, or a Purple song, Deep Purple. When it gets to the guitar solo, I can sing it. I can hum it. Yeah. I know what's coming because they are structured and are memorable. You know, I hate this just fucking... For the sake... I've been guilty of doing it. No, but if you can't sing the, the, the guitar solo, then it's not going to really stick with you. I, that's probably the problem yeah. I have with a lot of music. Yeah, I just, I just think... For me... The, the guitar for a while for me in modern metal became a percussive instrument you know like and it was like what the fuck it's like it's a musical fucking instrument let the drums do the and I mean yeah it sounds very impressive when you know all the whole band's doing this and it's very fucking technical and all that kind of stuff and fucking blah 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 but I tell you what you're not fucking Rush so fuck off Rush did it and the Rush do it better than any other one. Yeah, on a run rush. Yeah. Not for that fucking interesting. You know what it is? As, as I'm getting older. We went through a rough time with metal where they do it. It was chunky, you know, and there were no guitar solos. Cough, cough, same anger. You know, you, no, you, you, need, you need guitar solos. <laughs> you need to have melody. Don't you? But mm. I think. I think you do, but but if if I can think, there's Carnivorous, which is on Primeval, no guitar solo, no, and no. nobody's ever said, oh, there's no guitar solo. If you think of Seven Gates of Hell, it has a guitar theme throughout the whole thing, but there's no guitar solo. It's Not really it's, it's themed. It's a themed melody, and I think oh. that that that's that underlying thing. Uh, Jeff will put harmony and melody into something and if that it's to a solo it becomes a solo but if it if it doesn't it just becomes a melody it's a melody you know and 
I, I think that's what I love. I love the fact that, you know, we can counter melody and counter drive with rhythmically a solo pattern from him, or we can, I can go and meet him with the melody. And that's the dynamic we use all the time, supported by the drummers. And, and, and that's what's exciting about what we do. And I think that's what's innovative about his playing. And I think that that, uh, that just, it's a kind of George Benson or even a, an Al Petrelli approach where they just say, you pick the guitar up and you just play. And you could look at a Jimi Hendrix or a Gary Moore you know, they weren't doing notation. I'm not knocking that. Of course, you need to know where all the notes go because you want to put them together. But they played with their eyes shut. And that's something I always got. How, why does a guitarist close his eyes when he's playing? Because he's singing the notes. And if you watch Jeff's performances, he gets to points where he loses himself. That's when he becomes part of the, the instrument and the notes are coming out of the wood, but they're starting from him. And that's the beauty of that. That's when what we do live is beyond just playing the notation. It's, it's what people experience. They experience that feeling of, of realness. And that's, it emanates from the person who's playing the guitar. And that's what Jeff does. He plays from his soul and it goes through the wood and comes out in the notes. And, that, and you can't beat that. You can't beat no. that. You know, that's paying with your eyes I mean, closed. It's cool looking. <laughs> yeah, I had, this, I had this. I had this conversation um, a few days back, and um, I mean, you know, there's. I will never ever diss a guitar player. Never. I'm a guitar player myself, and I respect anybody who picks up that instrument. You have at whatever, at whatever level they are, you know, whether whether they, you know, just hit a few chords out or whether they're fucking Steve Vai or Ingvar Malmsteen. Everybody has got value if you pick up that instrument, okay? And there are some fucking incredible technicians out there. You know, I've seen fucking people on YouTube who can play everything that fucking Ingvar Malmsteen plays, everything that Steve Vai plays. You know, they're sitting there doing Eruption by Eddie Van Halen and all this kind of stuff, and that's fucking great. But where's your originality? That's my fucking thing, right? And this, there was a thing that happened a good few years ago when I was doing the rock school thing. We were endorsed by this company who used to supply the instruments. And one of the um, guys who works for the company was an incredible guitarist. I mean, he could do the Vi, the Mount, everything, okay? And this company brought out a new guitar. So he was the demonstrator. So he did a video of this fucking instrument, right? So I watched the YouTube video of this guy playing and I was just sitting there going, fucking hell, not in a million years. Gonna, you know, if I had 10 lifetimes, I could never play like that. That's fucking incredible. And then at one point I fell on the floor fucking laughing my fucking tits off because right at the bottom of the screen, there was a little ticker tape came across, right? And somebody had put this, right, on the video. He's ripping the shit out of this guitar. The guitar's hoisting the white flag. It's like, fucking hell, he's battering the crap out of it. And yeah. it came across. Can also be used to play a song. <laughs> 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 fucking brilliant. Yeah? And that, that is for me. And that's why I'm saying, for a while in modern metal, 
And again, anybody who picks up the flag of metal, you've got my utmost respect. It's just some of it isn't for me, right? I'm old school, but that, that's it. Um, but the guitar just seemed to lose its melodic and harmonic qualities for a while. It was all about chug and heaviness for the sake of heaviness, for trying to just be fucking heavier than the next thing that was fucking really heavy. And, yeah. you know, it lost choruses and melodies and sing-alongs and stuff. And as Tony said, you know, with Venom, you know, there's always, you know, bands from our era, you know, we seen one, um, I'm not going to say where or when it was, but me and Tony seen them. And this band have got this one song from the new wave of British heavy metal. They've got this one song everybody goes crazy for. And they were playing this venue. Me and Tony were there. We were on our way to another show. And um, they got a great reception all night. The place was packed, but then they played that one song. And the fucking roof caved in. Everybody went crazy, right? Now, what Tony said before, for whatever reason is true, Venom has got a bag full of those songs. Don't ask me why. I just I just wrote some fucking songs. That that that's it. You know, Countess Bathory, Living Like an Angel, Witching Hour, Black Metal. Black Metal was written on the shit that taken a dump. Right? That's true. Right? I've told the story many times now. Um, <laughs> didn't even think about it. Okay, back then there was no fucking Pro Tools. There was I, no I think that every time I hear that song now, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Black yeah, metal, yeah, so brown yeah, metal. For a shit, Sean. Yeah, brown the, metal. Thank you. The acronym is uh, the acronym is BM, so bowel movement or oh. black metal. <laughs> but you oh, know, man. back then, all, all I all I had back then was my guitar, and if I wanted to record anything, I had my dad's cassette recorder with a little plastic microphone at the front where I pressed. Pressed play and record, and I recorded some riffs onto it. I couldn't overdub, I couldn't do anything, nothing like that. So the songs were put together like that. You know, now we've got the luxury of being able to see the song on a screen and go, oh, I wonder what that bit would be like if I moved it six inches to the right. You know, so you've got that arrangement thing that you can do. But back then, I just wrote fucking songs. I wrote, a, I wrote a bit and I thought, well, that could be a chorus, right? Okay. Countess Bathory, for example. I walked in the studio one day and our manager's brother was on Abaddon's kit and he was playing a double bass drum pattern and he just kept going. So I walked over to my Marshall, plugged in, and I played a riff that I had. He was going... And I went... We kept playing. And then I improvised after that. Countless Bathory happened. Conrad came in and went, oh, I think I've got some lyrics for that. It's about this fucking woman who used to fucking bathe in blood and all that. And I was like, well, fucking look yourselves. Yeah, whatever, you know. And it was people. Countless was born, you know. So anyway, I'm going to let you guys talk now because the old man is going for a piss. Enjoy. <laughs> so actually, uh, yeah, so kind of pretty much far up into it. I think the two things, I, um, let's touch a little bit about your acting and then I will, and then how you, a little bit your drumming, how you got into the band. And then when he comes back, we can kind of wrap up on what are your future plans, how you guys are doing. Okay, okay. We'll just get married. The three of us will just get married, I guess. That's it. Yeah. Probably yeah. Jeremy's got like... Half a football team already, so <laughs> it's just yeah, like, like, yeah, I have a 
five between my wife and I and two grandkids. I have three kids and one grandkid, so. Oh, my grandkids are the hardest. Grandkids are the hardest, man. I feel so old. I'm only 50. Man, I love my grandson, but when he comes over, I... Uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting, man. My granddaughter was just here, uh, and she's at the stage where she's just now starting to take steps. And she was like, she was over here at uh, Pop Pop and Nana's house, and she started like boogieing around the whole house. So she started her first walks over here. So that was like a oh, pretty very nice. Moment. So are you your Pop Pop? Yeah, Mama Pop Pop. Pop Pop too. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, unite. <laughs> they got me a shirt that says it. I finally had to break down and actually wear a shirt with a logo on it says Pop Pop when he's around. Well, you know, it's it's needed, man. It's needed in today's age. <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah, like when he started, when, when the little guy started walking around at one and he'd really start moving, like, I'm yep. like, and wake up. Thank God my wife could wake up with him and take care of him and that diapers because I, I sleep through the night. I get up, I walk into the walls. I can't even hit the bathroom in the middle of the night and take care of myself <laughs> as an adult. I can't wake up and take care of my baby. At this point in my life, that's waking hours i mean we just, i need a baby between reasonable hours office hours <laughs> yeah not not witching hour you can't no. have a baby during definitely witching hours no, i can't do that not, not at all man i was just crazy. gonna say what just on the back of the guitarist thing what's interesting is that uh i, I i've been doing this uh i do this particular project i've just finished or finishing um has uh, guests on it and um in particular, three guests stood out. Uh, was Marty Friedman, uh, Attila Exeterocon, oh, yeah. and Jeff, because um, I have guest soloists. And those three in particular returned their solos for the songs, um, like within hours. And they're just there, perfect. I mean, they're just the feel, the whole vibe, everything. And uh, they hadn't pre-heard the songs. They just got, I mean, they're cover songs, but they just got delivered the songs and just played and sent them straight back. And all the other guitarists, or lots of the other guitarists, have taken a bit more time over it, trying mm-hmm. to get the feeling right and everything else. And I, I think that's a kind of another dynamic about the naturalness of where, the way you come through as a musician is if you're just in tune with the music... It just feels natural. If you're, you know, specific to your band or your genre, uh, because I've got musicians from all genres to, to do this, is that um, depending on how you come through, they look at it very differently. You know, they think that, and I've had some musicians and, and, and performers have said, oh, I, I couldn't, Tony, I couldn't, because they feel it's like, it's not my, um, my, my area. But it's like, yeah, but if you're a singer, you just sing. I mean, you know, even opera is a challenge, but, you know, you just you just let yourself let it happen. And the same thing uh, sonically with a drummer or a keyboard player or a guitarist or whatever. And what's interesting is seeing how people in our industry have approached the, the performances I've asked them for and how they've responded to that. And some have found it very natural and went, okay, taking it on board and just done their thing. And others have like struggled and taken a week or two weeks or three weeks to consider it. And how do I approach this? And others have just went, oh, I, I couldn't, couldn't, and, and have, uh, you know, not challenged themselves. And I think uh, it's about being comfortable with who you are and what you're capable of doing, which is another underlining thing for this band. We don't, we don't question our ability. We just challenge each other. And if Jeremy comes up with something that's quite challenging, um, then we rise to that. And and if 
If well, you're I a pretty good player yourself, too. We didn't bring it up, but I you know, good chance. You are a very strong player yourself, so. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. But, you know, I think that, you know, what I love about working with Jeff, we've always done for each other is we've always pushed each other. So the more I push him, I write song, I'll write a song and send it to him, and I'll, I'll try and push him to, you know, go somewhere he might not have been. And yeah. he does the same thing for me. And so you've always got that progression going on. We challenge each other um, to to come up as high as we can go. And so we try and do that for each other. And I think that's the amazing thing about the band. Um, Jeff will so challenge I, me whenever we go to play black metal. He's like, I'm going to kill you, mate. And then he just throws <laughs> the song like five <laughs> times faster than it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, when we do uh, when we do uh, Sons of Satan, whenever we've done Sons of Satan as our uh, as, like a signature good night thing, uh, 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 as our the end of our set, there's a breakdown and then we come back at it. And depending on how Jeremy then goes at it, depends on how he's going to push me after the breakdown. So we, all, <laughs> we always have this moment after the breakdown where he's he could like lift off. So he tries to push me a little bit. So we have some fun with it. But that, that's the thing. It's like we have a synergy and we, we kind of lock in like a like a good watch or, or, or some kind of good machine. You know, we, we, we're doing that dynamic all the time with each other on stage, but we lock in so easily. And that's rare. That is rare. And all of the characters that we played with and we've had, um, you know, it's very rare that you... You know, Jeremy plays with a guy called Taylor Nordberg, who's an incredible guitarist, great bass player, but just as a musician. But he plays with him a lot. And and whatever you hear from those two have done, there's whatever that synergy is. It's already there. You know, mm-hmm. they, you take those two people, separate them, put them with other people, and it might not be there the same way. And I think that's amazing. I always said to people, you know, who were fans of the traditional then in the classic original lineup, when they go, yeah, but, you know, Mantis and Cronus and, and, and Jeff and Conrad had a, a way of working. I said, they had a synergy. I don't know what it was. They don't know what it was, but there was some kind of synergy. Me and Jeff have always had the same kind of synergy. Different, but the same thing. And it's very... More love, different. less love, hate. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah. It, you know, on a musician level, you know, there's, a, there's something that I don't know. It just, you could play with like 10 musicians and not have whatever that is. And then you find one person and that's it. You just lock in and you naturally know what each other's going to do. And you can feel the uh, uh, emotion coming from their playing. And that's what I love. You know, that's why I was saying before that, uh, you know, not touring. If we can't get after COVID, if we can't get all of us free, then we don't until we can, because for now it's become apparent to me that this band needs that synergy and we tried hard to get it we didn't have it and with Jeremy we do have it I've seen it on stage I saw it at Bloodstock I saw it at Vacan I saw it at Hellfest it's like whatever we are this is what we are and it works and we have to keep that uh, that's the identity so so yeah yeah it's it's quite a special thing so I'm quite privileged that I get to be with these two guys in, in a musical sense you know uh, and if we if we all get married at the end of this, if the lockdown happens and we get married and have children together, then so be it. You know, so be it. Just I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to judge. I'm just <laughs> not going to watch your kids. I'm not going to babysit though. That's all I'm yeah. going to say. You can't just handle the kids on. at night. <laughs> I can't just take them at night, man. 
I said Jeff's getting on a bit, but we can't we can't waste all that coming in the studio for eight hours. We have to do something for <laughs> that, don't we? <laughs> He's like, no one's ever going to want to be in the studio with me again. But to be to be fair, he did say he comes in here for eight hours. I mean, that's extreme. That's 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 like. I mean, I'm drained, and I'm over here in Florida just listening. (laughs) I even have my special jar for it. See, see, he's got the jar. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's so gross. <laughs> oh, you guys are awful. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the album. I mean, I think you guys are all underrated individually as, as artists, and that's the thing. I mean, there's bass and, and guitar, and I have seen some clips of you online. You know, it's usually been on the band. Not, people are always like, you know, individually, you know, this musician stands out because they always pick musicians. I think hopefully you guys start getting a little more recognition, especially with the lineup playing out live now. After, well, the, after the apocalypse is over, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get out there. Well, you know, yeah. John, Cizula, John Cizula said to us when we were going to do the first album uh, as Venom Inc. Uh, and uh, uh, the Inks fans were incorporated and just it means that Venom is part of who we are. Certainly, of course, Jeff's heritage. And I was there for 10 years. So, but, but, but it's incorporated. It means incorporating everything that we are as musicians and all the music that we do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've had a good turn, turn to the end of this year, although it's 2020 was locked down uh, on, a, on a, a political front, on a business front for the band. I've been working nonstop and, and, and we've got amazing stuff we're about to drop next year, plus the album, which is the recordings. We're down to just vocals now. We need a three-month run-up. So, you know, when we can't go out and promote it, I was like, well, okay, we just have to wear the lockdowns. There's nothing we can do. Yeah. And, uh, and when it goes out, it goes out. And if it can't go out till spring of 2021, but we can start touring, then so be it, you know, because it's important yeah. that we... We don't want to just drop it online so people can have it, but we, they can't see us playing it. We, we want to go out and play live. And if we'd released it where we'd originally planned in March of 2020, and we don't tour until November 2021 for whatever reason, people have forgot the album was there. So I, you, you want to keep it fresh and exciting. So there's a three-month run-up, so hopefully we can get it done as fast as possible. Uh, completed vocals and then Jeff does the mixing and production and then we're, we're, we're set to go you know but um, the intention is we have a, a, a thing in, in Brazil in, in May is planned and then some dates in South America and then we have to get into Europe and which we're planning uh, to tour and of course depending on how North America is then North America you know but it's something that you said before we began to talk uh, mm-hmm. I just wanted to make a point of because I read a lot about uh, a lot of stuff about you know bands and financing and and then I saw with with the elections that's going on in America, COVID and everything else. I saw something about today about um, you know voters and uh, um, and people having the right to vote who were maybe illegal in America and whether they should have been able to vote and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, and I thought. You know, what's what's quite strange is that uh, uh, England, who is uh, um, very close to America from from the instigating of America and its its foundation, you know, and although we fought and and it got its independence, you know, a lot of the the initial input into America from the Dutch, from the German, from the English. So 
you know, we're part of that basis, England, Ireland, Scotland, we're part of the foundation of America. And we've been a close ally forever, of course. And yet, uh, the question of illegals having the right to stay in America, you know, I, I think freedom of movement for people who live on the planet, you know, I'm, all, I'm, I'm a great purveyor of that. However, there are restrictions and rules, and if countries apply the rules, I've got, I got to say that's a bit fair, really. And um, if someone comes in illegally, you know, should they go through the proper channels? And this brings me to my point is us being so close, us being part of the foundation of, of America initially, and us being such great allies. If we come to play in America, Jeremy is an American citizen, so for him, he's already there. But for myself and Jeff being English, we have to spend somewhere in the region between five and $10,000 to get a piece of paper that says we can come play shows in America for three weeks. And then we pay federal tax. And then we have to apply for our social security so we can claim tax back if if we're allowed to get it back. And then we have to pay state tax for every state we go to when we get played. And then if we sell merch, we have to pay merch tax on top of that. So we have to pay the Fed that tax. We have to pay local tax on our merch. And most venues in America will charge us an extra fee to sell merch in their venue. And so, you know, I think, okay, we do that because I love America. We have amazing fans in America. And we want to play in America. Of course we want to tour America. But I'm thinking as allies, as part of the foundation of the country, we follow those rules and we're prohibited and we have to pay the taxes and we're fined if we don't and we do all of that. So when people argue about, you know, immigrants coming in or people coming in for free and then, you know, illegally, and then people argue about the fact that illegals should have status. It's like, well, shouldn't we have some kind of freedom? Yeah, do we have to pay all of that? And I kind of think that there's a balance that isn't being addressed in America about that whole system that's working. You know, you're penalizing people who you're allied with and and then fighting for the freedom of people you know, to be there for who may have came in illegally. I just thought that was a very interesting point I wanted to get across. Because, no, it, it is a good um, point. I think, I mean, America was made from immigrants. So, I mean, the new administration is, is, is going to start taking things. Differently. I mean, I think it, it, it's been a hot mess. Um, yes, and I think, yes. I think punishing you guys I'm are, sure. you guys are a business. So you come over to here to discourage a business. You know, the past administration was all about putting businesses in other countries and da, 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 da. Point is, if you're a business coming over here, you want the business to come over here. So if you're coming here, you're paying taxes, just say at one time on your merch, whatever. Yes. There's not like it. No, no one else is coming over. No executives are coming over and they're making them pay five grand to have a meeting with a new Sony Corp or or, or whatever. Once a year, once a year, or once every two years. How long right. do those uh those O2 things? How long do they last? It's like two years or something. Yeah. Or, or it's like a year for the work permit, right? That's it's, right. Yeah. I yeah. mean. You can you can get up to 18 months, but then you're pressured into getting in and out. And of course, then that's financing. You know, I mean, uh, uh, um, on that on that same point is like, uh, there were lots of fans that went, you guys are playing all the shows, you know, because back in the day, Venom or, you know, my band or, or a lot of English bands, they, didn't, they never came over. It's almost as if, you know, they made the choice or we made the choice not to go and play. It's like, you know, they didn't have the finance to be able to get there, you know, with a, a flight costing in the region, 
you know, a thousand bucks and then your, uh, your, you know, visa application, which, you know, you can pay five grand for a visa application. You have to use an American attorney. So you pay an American attorney, you have to pay them in advance. So it has to be like five months, three, five, three to five months ahead of time. Uh, the closer it gets to your date of going, you have to expedite, which means you have to pay more money. So it could be up to eight to 10,000 pounds. And then you have to go, then once they've give you the paperwork, you have, we have to apply to the American embassy. Jeff now lives in Portugal, so his is in Lisbon, mine's in London. You apply to the American embassy, I have to go there with all my paperwork, have be interviewed, tell them what I'm going for so it's all legitimate, give them my passport. At that point, they can turn around and deny you, but you have to pay them to be denied. So I have to pay them 150 bucks or whatever, and then they decide. If they say no, I lose my £10,000 or whatever it is at five grand, and I lose the hundred and and now I've just got no. So now I have to cancel the tour. So it's like, not only do I not have the income, but I've also lost all that money to go. And that's kind of how they put us in. And I just think there's something kind of wrong. And when I hear litigations and people arguing, particularly in America, about the uh, illegals coming in and whether they should have the right to be there. And, uh, you know, I'm all for a free movement. And if people are struggling in their country, they should be able to go somewhere that's going to look after them. But I think, like, hang on, that's kind of wrong. We're going through all the rules. We're going through all the right passages. And we're paying. And we could be told no and all we want to do is come in and play a few shows. That's all we want to do. And once we get in there, it just costs us, costs, costs us. It should us. be different. It should be, it should be like an entertainment, a music industry have a different way, you know, a touring thing. It shouldn't be. Clearly, everybody knows who you guys are. You guys are not sneaking bombs in your shoes. There's no big, you know, breakthrough. There's no, you're bringing income, you're touring through the country. Not just you, all bands. I mean. Exactly. Who exactly. Is, it's, a, it's an industry. It's a business. It's not like an individual coming through you know, no, a student exactly. visa, no one's hiding under a fence, walking around a fence because they're not all up, you know. Have so many bands, you have so many bands, I see them all the time, uh, year after year after year, pre-COVID, they, where they go, oh my God, uh, whoever it is from Sweden's cancelled the fucking tour, and then the band gets hammered for it, yeah. and it, it may be, it may be, it's not the band's fault, it's something to do with through the application, because it, as Jeff will tell you, when you even do the American immigration information, you have to do, it's like a 25-page form you have to do online. It times out. And if you make one mistake, it tells you at the beginning, if you make one mistake, they'll throw your form away. But you still have to pay for the processing. So it's like, oh, my God. So you know, you're like, it's That's the most awful. difficult thing in the world to do. And I think, you know, we went to, we went to Russia. We went to China, okay? Communist countries, bad, evil empire, Ugh, big teeth, late at night, they're going to come into your room and they're going to eat your liver, right? And, and basically, this is what happened when I went to Russia. I went down to the Russian embassy. It took me half an hour and they went, thank you very much. Give me my passport with my thing in and that was it. We flew to Russia. When we went to China, I think I was in there 10 minutes. I went in 10 minutes and went, yes, take this, take that, go there. I went through, they went, okay, off you go, get get out. And we walked straight into China. It's like, well, what about, the best what one about when I went to Carry, carry on, I'll tell them, let's go on, Jeremy. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, what about how I went to Japan with no fucking visa yes. at all? 
I yeah, yeah. It, I didn't yeah. do the right paperwork, or and then uh, we just went, and they were just let me in Japan. They're like, "Here you go, bud. Welcome to Japan." I was like, "Oh my the god!" System. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when I, when I went for my Chinese visa, right? I thought this is going to be a fucking nightmare, so I had to get take the train down to Lisbon, went to the Chinese embassy. I had the visa form all filled in, but I had printed another visa form which I had left blank in case I made any mistakes and I would just fill it in, in the office, in front of them and go, there you are. So I, I'm like that. I take everything in duplicate and triplicate and fucking photographs, all kinds of fucking malarkey, right? I get down there and there's this young Chinese girl behind the desk. So I go, I go, eh, yeah, I'm going to uh, Beijing and Taiwan. I'm in a band and uh, this is my form. And she goes, oh, yes, okay, yes, yes, yes. And then she's got a biro, right, on my form. She goes, ah, yes, yes. Oh, you don't say that. No, 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 no. She scribbles that out and she goes, oh, don't say that. No, 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 no. And I went, I've got another form if you want me to fill it in. No, no, it's okay. Oh, don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> fucking scribbled all over the form. Then she gave me a receipt and said, you now go to bank and pay. Uh, give me this reference number. So I went to the bank. I said, I've got to pay this. Eh, yeah, yeah, okay. Card number, bop, 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 bop. Right, okay. Back to the Chinese embassy. I went there. There's the receipt. She went, ah, there you go. There you go, Chinese visa. Have a nice time. Bye. <laughs> now, it. in America, right, one of the fucking questions on the fucking security, have you ever been or are you currently a member of the Nazi party? That is one of the fucking questions on the American visa form. Yeah. Are you and a the terrorist? Rest of them are just as ridiculous. Are you carrying like... a bomb? Are you carrying <laughs> a bomb? That is like, that is insane. That is. Oh. It, 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 and it is like Tony said, the first time we went over, I was still living in England, right? So we were going over with Empire. Tony came up to my house at this point. And we both sat there. He was on the fucking phone to the embassy. I'm on the fucking internet. It's keep oh. timing out and crashing. You're getting right to the end. You lose fucking everything. Um, it's like, what the fuck? And like say, Tony said about Russia, I phoned the Russian embassy. I says, right, okay, I'm going to Russia. What do I do? Uh, you send passport, uh, registered post. We send back. Uh, okay, yeah, you do now. Boom, phone went down. So I went, right, download the form, fill it in, put it in an envelope, registered post to the Russian embassy, yeah, champion. Two days later, my passport came back. Welcome to Russia. Like, yeah. Fucking hell, man. How, how is that possible? Why oh, you... man. So but you know, the thing is, I, I would like to know if Metallica have to get fucking permits to come to Europe and play. Yeah, they don't. They don't. Yeah. No, that, that... And they won't come over if the dollar isn't strong enough against the fucking euro. That's true, that's true. I love James and I love Lars and they're nice guys and all that and Kirk's a lovely fluffy guy and he's got greeny at the end of the day, but fucking hell. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like, unbalanced, I don't understand. It's almost like we're, we're one of the biggest allies of the USA, of North America, and yet we're penalised the most if we're trying to go and do a two-week tour there and then the costing is massive against us and then it costs us so much, and we can be denied at the last minute. You know, yeah, it'd yeah. be a processing like, fee, like you know, like a, go through the paperwork fee, come to America. You, if you make buy in America, pay the same taxes that Americans pay on your product in America. Yeah. Like that's just yeah, that's what everybody does. Years, it's fair for everybody. But it's been you, raised you have to, in the past four years. It's went up. It's doubled. 
I mean, so where yeah. the fees it doubled right before uh, Creator was going to do one of their last tours they did over here with Obituary. Um, I was sitting with their TM. We were over in Europe. I was uh, tour managing Sepultura and doing front of house for them. We were out with Creator. And I was sitting with the tour manager and he was like, can you believe that it? they just doubled it? So they went from they went from needing to pay uh, with their crew, I think somewhere like eighteen to 20000 It They had to scale. That was what it was. And they had to yeah. scale back and not take a light guy or not take a or hire guys over there where so they couldn't even bring their entire crew because the the dollar amount had just raised so much it had like like nearly doubled so where it was two grand it was four grand and so I mean, that's that's a very why, like hits you in the wallet it's why we used to tour and people go like there's just me carrying my bass with all my pedals inside and there's jeff carrying his guitar case with all of his shit inside and they go, don't you guys have crew? And we, we'd be crawling on stage in semi-darkness, setting our own stuff up. It's because we can't, aff- we can't fucking afford to bring a whole load of people because, you know, you might... It's not practical at all. Denied or it's like, so we went as simple as we could go so we could just get in quick and play our mm-hmm. shows and come away, you know. Uh, I just think that I talked to the American Musician, Musician Society about this. We had a big conference last month with the, uh, mu- uh, the Musicians Union in the UK and the American Union. It was one of the points I was driving home. And it wasn't just me. It was several of the British uh, acts, some even bigger than us, of course. I know that sounds unfeasible. But someone bigger than you? But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Nuts, you know. If I saw them in the flesh, they're probably this size compared to me, but on video, they seem bigger. bigger. But they were like, that. we were all saying the same thing. The cost is so astronomical, you have to budget that in, you know? And it was like, I don't see why just for America. It's not like we don't want to pay the taxes when we're in there, but it's, right. like, you, it's like we're paying to get in so we can pay the taxes. It's like, I don't understand why that is working in that way, you know? Um, no, I don't think a lot of people know that either. I think it's important to say that. And that's kind of, like I said, part of the end of the show. It's like, you know, people are complaining. I mean, people yeah, buy those, buy those concert shirts. Those shirts are paid for, like, so much stuff. It's not about the shirt. Yeah. No, it's paying for no. the bus, the band, the visas. I mean. Your visas, yeah, exactly. If, if You know, you're not going to buy a shirt and you're going to complain about it. Don't, don't expect to see your band, man. People have to eat. And, you know, Sean, I think it's important, important to say for American fans also that, you know, the, the agents and the venue. The agents have to go to the venues before the tour is set up. So the agents go to the venues, try and secure the venues so you have the route of the tour, depending on how you want to route the tour from LA to New York or whatever it is, through Texas or through, you know, the Midwest, up through, uh, uh, you know, Montana, whatever, whichever way you're going, through Chicago, Detroit, and whatever. But So they try and work out a routing for the tour if it's over two weeks or three weeks. And then they secure that, all the contracts get drawn up. And during that time, the bands are trying to get the visas so they get allowances to go. Now, at any point during that whole process, which could take three to five months, if the American embassy in, in the UK decides they say no, or you made a mistake on the form, or they, for whatever reason they've decided they don't want to uh, give you that uh, uh, a visa you then have to expedite. If you then get refused or the expedition is going to come too late, you have to then cancel. And the reaction from fans is like, fuck, I bought a ticket. They fucked us again. They've canceled the tour. But sometimes sometimes it may be the band has not got their shit together. But a lot of the times it isn't 
it isn't the, the, the band themselves or the management or the intention of the agent or the clubs themselves. It, it just is the red tape that is the Fed that we can't get through for whatever reason. And, you know, you have to wear the loss. You know, we've lost before, you know, five, $6,000, you know, trying to get in and we've had to cancel. So now we have to go find another five, $6,000 to try again to, to, to cancel it late. So just so the fans know, you know, the intention for any band who are trying to get to America is not to cancel a tour. It's to come and play. But sometimes just the uh, political the climate can fuck you up, yeah. And that's important. So you guys have a double. I mean, just to be an American band touring is is a challenge. You guys got to get you get you guys twice the hurdles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to get one big one just before. Then you can do the regular hurdles that are here touring. The venues, this, the that, the 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 equipment, the all the insurance and that, and then yeah, people take a hunk of your merchandise because your merchandise is paying for half your stuff anyhow. I mean, that's it. But you know, a lot of agents for young bands and, and for some mid-sized bands and, and bigger. But a lot of the agents will will work on the fact that they, the pay you might get from a venue, don't worry about it if, if, if this place in Spokane is only paying, you know, it's playing like two or three grand short of what you wanted because right. it's a pit stop on the way to Seattle or Portland or... Like, or a, like a pickup show? A pickup show, yeah. So you're going to do this pickup show, it'll get you to there. But don't worry because... All the money that you're going to lose, you'll make on merch. So you could average maybe, you know, three, four, five grand a night. And it's like, okay, so they budget in that way. But you end up in, in uh, I don't know, St. Paul in fucking the middle of December and the snow's like six foot drift. And, you know, people who don't live in downtown St. Paul, so they're coming yeah. from out or they may be traveling three or four hours because in America, distance, people travel two or three hours to a show, then the people yep. can't actually get to your show. So, you know, if you've only, if you book this place and you end up being there and it's a pickup show and only a hundred people can physically get there, how are you going to make five or six grand on merchant? You're not. So if you have 10 shows like that, you're fucked. Immediately you're fucked. So, but the agents tend to promise you, just don't worry about your pay. We'll spend all that on the budget. So you get a nice big tour bus and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And then you'll make all your, your wage will be made. We'll spend all that on the budget, the, 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 the vehicle hire, the fuel, the, the crew, the flights, the visas, and then you'll make your money on your merchandise. Um, well, if you've got 10,000 people in shore, that's amazing. You you could probably make that. But if you've only got 100 people who have turned up in the midwinter at a show in the Arsene... At one of those shows, and those are horrible. You feel bad for the band because it's like it's like a half venue and you know it's just the weather. Well, yeah. We play every show like it's vacant or, or whatever. So for us, it's like we'll give you the same show. But on a practical level from... A, from financial, a, yeah. I mean, that's I always think yeah, of that. It's, like, uh, it's difficult. It, 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 I heard a new another thing someone's like probably looking at new charges now too because you guys don't have enough things to pay. There's probably gonna be like new new charges to make sure like COVID cleaning. There's gonna be some kind of that's gonna be a new someone's gonna be I'm sure the clubs are gonna pay for that. I'm sure the bands have to pay for their own COVID oh, yeah. cleaning team or some crap. Completely. You know, the the thing is what COVID's done is uh you know it it's put it's put everybody in a situation now because the bands are wanna gonna wanna keep their their uh, their prices 
for for hire, they're going to want to keep them the same because mm-hmm. they haven't been able to play it. So it's like, wow, I want to keep my price to hire this band or that band is going to be X. Right. Um, the the agents are going to try and push the venues to pay a little bit more because the agents have not been making income because mm-hmm. nobody's been able to tour. The, the venues are going to want to reduce the price they pay because they haven't been able to make any money. And yeah. the fans who want to come are going to want to have a budget on what they pay. So it starts, the fans are going to want to pay a bit less because they haven't been... Having yeah, some of them haven't been working or exactly. some have been working. So you just got to make a crowd there. So you're going to have this cross where the, the bands want to keep whatever they can make as good as they were making. The agents are going to want to make a little bit more because they've been dry for so long. You've got the venues and then the fans who want to make it cheaper. And I think we're going to have a stalemate where we're not going to have shows unless people just go, look, uh, we've got to just make it work. So we've got to, we've got to come together and think of the budget and the cost of the- well, I, I think if when it goes down, if they don't, they're all, everyone goes out of business. Everybody's, everyone's either going to have to play nicely in the sandbox or everyone's going down. That's exactly. And, and, and what we had with this, uh, uh, with this uh, uh, symphonium between the musicians union and the American uh, musicians union was exactly that. It was like, how do, forget the agents, forget what the bands are desiring. We know everybody's been at work, but how do we make it viable so that we can fill a venue with fans who have possibly had no income or had their unemployment stopped or been, had their, you know, been put out of work? If we play in America, it was specific to America, but it applies to the rest of the world. It's how do we make a live venue work? Because you could do a, a, any band, I would guess almost any band is going to be able to put 500 people crammed into any venue as soon as they're allowed to go in. Because people right. don't give a shit. You could be pulling a rabbit out of your ass. And I people will, say will, want to come met, I, I will say like metal and rock bands, you'll have fans. Yeah. Example, metal growing and crying. They'll be like, I haven't worked. I'm going to scrape together. I'm going to go to the pawn shop and sell my PlayStation. They'll somehow make it work so they can they see will. their band. There is a dedication that I don't think you're going to see from, I might want to be disparaging to a pop band. You know what I mean? Where it's kind of, well, maybe next year. You know, it's not disposable income. It's just, they're going to want to make it work. Yeah, I think oh, that's I, true. And, and I think from thing. I think I think you know one of the things I talked about at the uh, thing was that I hope the American government makes an allowance for European bands that um, when it's clean, clear to go in that the costing and the pro- processing is easier so that we can go in at less cost and we can go in faster because once we get in there we're actually by playing in America. And by paying the local taxes and the levies that we have on them, money. Right. is making money for America. It's putting into the economy. Right. Um, if you can't go in there, there's no money to be made either way. So Exactly, exactly. And hopefully exactly. the new administration, you know, someone can get through to the right people to kind of, yeah. I mean, some things are moving along finally. Hey, so fellas, yeah. un- unfortunately, I have to go. My wife has made me a dinner. Uh, I yeah. missed my other dinner. We'll wrap so, it up too. Uh, Sorry about that. No, cool. hey, no worries. Thank you, All thank good. you, thank you. It's been it's been fantastic talking to you, man. Yeah, it was a good chat. Uh, it was. Love you, Sean. Nice to meet you, buddy. Take care, man. I know, right? I know. See you guys. Yeah, we'll talk to you very soon. Lots of love. Take care, man. I suppose well, one we second should, here. We should wrap up, shouldn't we? Yeah, we are wrapping up. Let me just say one thing here. Okay.
Okay. I just got a text from um, Produce Like a Pro. They're like, oh, a while ago, they're like, oh, because I've been trying to get it for a very long time. Because I don't know if you know what the output that they, they put out. Yeah. They put so much out. Yeah, they're yeah, constantly yeah. going and like they're like six days a week, morning till night. I, so it's crazy. So he's like, yeah, I got time for you. Brilliant. And I, knew, I said, I said, well, no, good. I said, I said, right. I said, well, I got Venom, Ink, five o'clock, usually an hour to two hours to give time. You know, if you need to recording, you got to like download, you know, and I give a buffer. So, so they messaged me after all the time. We've had somebody, he's like, I got it. I saw it go up. I'm like, well, I'm with Venom. So, Okay. Great. How it goes? No, so many, so many important po points, though. Um, you know, we're done. I thank you. Um, I love talking to you. You're, 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 you guys are really great. You're fun. Um, maybe well, do it again so sometime. I thank might do some so panels next year too, and about stuff like this, about you know finances for bands, and get a couple different people in there. So I'll keep you in mind. You know, Brilliant. you know, we get different bands and talk about it, like you know, or you know, different issues that aren't usually talked about with music. And yeah. musicians can talk about it and kind of put it out there and be like, yeah, this is reality. And, you know, and that's, yeah. I'm not yeah. trying to be a downer to the fans, but I just want them to realize, you know. It's that. It is that. There's, it's, some, there's some real, there's some grown up shit going on here, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we are very fortunate. Manchester has a studio there. We all can record stuff so we can keep the costings down, which helps us to survive. Um, and the, we have merchandise. We have an American merchant company, JSR, and we have a rock mark, mark merch for Europe. So that takes along. But, um, but this is your you career. Know, you, you should be at this point in like any other job. If you've been 40 years in your career, you have a pension or a 401k, you've got jobs. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with you at this point. You like to have the stuff. You're not a rock star. You're not, you know, throwing yeah. cans of caviar or, or, you know, shooting at whales or something. Yeah. Some, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're just literally got some Surviving. things in the fires in the iron where you're like all right I, i'm not going to die right now yeah exactly exactly you know? so i think that's why it's really important that fans realize that you know where we're, we're trying to you know we obviously want to connect with them and we do music for that but it there's a sometimes there's practicalities that are cost we can't avoid i mean that was so that's great actually bringing that up i'm gonna have to sit down with that and i think i do want to reproach this that maybe I'll, maybe i'll actually make that a thing bring you in specifically yeah. for that one we can talk about okay. touring and touring costs we'll do it after the holidays um yeah um, yeah maybe that, maybe that, yeah maybe that maybe that's an episode you should do and ask other artists internationally their take on it maybe they're slightly different to mine or maybe there's no but I, i've heard other artists and there's other artists that are like that and have issues like um dweezil zappa he actually has a, yeah. a, a website that he does now called called reward that's and right. Actually, yeah. it's, everything's there. If you don't know anything about it, like it's designed for the bands, they get paid. It, 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 it kind of sidetracks Spotify and everything. It's it's really band based. Yeah. We need more of that kind of stuff. You know, yeah, he's talked about Patreon, stuff. Patreon's another one. Patreon's yep. another one. Uh, but those kind of things where you're just dealing directly, you know, like we, me and Jeff did with Empire, we were dealing directly with the fans. Mm -hmm. So, to go there, there was no middleman. It was direct costs, and we could make it work. But uh, yeah, maybe I'll do that. I'll get, I'll get a couple of international bands. I'll see who I get, and then um, for touring, and then I'll, I'll see if I get a couple of American bands. We'll get a couple. We we'll do a little heavy metal Brady Bunch thing here, and um, yeah. yeah, 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 brother. I thank you. I, I have to let you again because I didn't get to use my my my, my nickname. 
Yes, you're doing yeah. <laughs> it. Like, you don't want to call me that around the house. I'm, I'm not dead. I'm like, it's, it's dead. They're like, no, it's dead. <laughs> Wait, it's, so, I love that. I love that. All right, brother. I, well, thank you for your time. I, I got your links, everything. Yes. Yeah. And, we, you know, anything else, just very quickly before I say goodnight, I'll just oh, yeah. pass you to Jeff for one final word. But I just want to say the Demolition Man is my nickname. And the reason I got that was because we were playing a show. I trashed all my gear accidentally. It all blew up. The cabs blew up. The amp, the valves in the, my marshal just started to blow up and everything was on fire and everybody was running around for 10 minutes trying to put the fire out. And the, my guitarist at the time went to the microphone and just turned around very dryly in a very English way and went, ladies and gentlemen, the demolition man. And that was, about <laughs> that, was it. that was 1979. And so it stuck, you know, That's I just break things. And Jeremy is the war machine because one of the songs we used to play a lot and people wanted to hear was Warhead. And uh, and it, it became a kind of anthemic song. And when Jeremy took over, somebody just said like, he's like a war machine when he plays Warhead. And that was it. So we called him Warhead, the war machine. So that was where thank it you, Thank you for everybody actually when to wrap that up. But uh, I, I thank you. You're perfect. We don't need to talk about your, your other stuff. I can talk for hours with you. This has been fantastic, man. I first showed up from work. I was like, I gotta go. I see you. But um, no worries. Thank you, man. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna say good night, Sean. I'm gonna pass you to Jeff. I He's actually you. gone. Good night. And I'll yes, go on. Take care.